going on, everybody? Today I interviewed my first guest I didn't previously know. He was recommended to me by a friend, David Mitchell. Shout out to David. Jeff is employed as a chief nurse at the VA hospital out here in South Mississippi. We have conversations about nursing, healthcare, health insurance, and of course, we're going to talk about COVID. It was a great conversation. Jeff is much deeper than his nursing occupation or really any other any of the other jobs he's had. We chat for nearly four hours. Trust me, there are many, many captivating topics to cover, and I don't think we got to all of them at all. Jeff and I share an affinity for trades. He has a 15-acre hobby farm in the DeSoto National Forest. He has goats, chickens, etc. What you wouldn't know by looking at Jeff is he has talents and trades you wouldn't think a farmer has. Jeff operates a YouTube channel known as Mudflap. He tells the story about how he, he came up with that name, and it's pretty interesting as well. He does reviews, fixes equipment, and even creates automation projects to enable his farm to operate more smoothly. He's got a background in microelectronics, uh, programming code, as well as more traditional trades such as woodworking. Jeff allows his audience to follow along as he fixes everyday issues on his farm. From creating an automated chicken coop door he can operate with his phone that he had to program himself, to pulling apart and repairing a hydraulic actuator. Jeff is an intelligent, well-spoken man. His mind, he has a very open mind, rather, and it's greatly informed, and that likely explains his willingness to continue to learn. Did I mention he's in a PhD program for nursing as well? Yeah, he's, he's a pretty amazing dude. When I invite people on my show, the response is often, I don't know what you want to hear from me. I have a couple of guesses of why so many people respond in this way. Primarily, it could be the case that individuals don't want to have a bad show and they want to make sure that they can put on a good performance. But let's face it, most people have never been interviewed. And those that have probably aren't getting interviewed for just talking about their life. But they feel it feels like they feel guilty telling their story because they don't find themselves that interesting. Yet literally everyone I've talked to has blown me away and the response from my audience has mirrored this. Jeff is an incredibly amazing and talented person. We all have experiences others don't. It's part of the unique nature of human beings. If unique things on this planet have value and we understand unique things do have value, then we must understand our uniqueness is beyond what we can understand as valuable or rather able to be valued. Everyone, you're going to love this one. Everyone, please welcome Jeff Collins. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of the Shop and Chivalry Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Collins. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> well, glad, glad you could make it. I know we've been talking for a while about getting in here and, and doing this show, and I'm glad that we could finally hook it up. So tell us about yourself. Um. So I grew up uh, horribly poor in a little small town in between Huntington and Charleston, West Virginia. Okay. Um, come from a long line of uh, Appalachian Americans. As a matter of fact, I can trace back uh, 12, 13 generations, all born and raised in the mountains of Appalachia. So um, joined the Air Force at 18, kind of went out to see the world, mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of fun things there, got married. Raised some kids, bought a, uh, a small hobby farm here in the DeSoto National Forest, and uh, 
somewhere in there I went to nursing school. So <laughs> well, those here are, I am. Those are certainly cliff notes. <laughs> well, so you mentioned that uh, you, you can trace back your lineage in uh, Appalachia. And wasn't there something significant about one of your grandfathers and, and Charleston? Uh, there is. Um, Charleston, West Virginia, which is the capital, was initially um, named, well, it was named for my sixth great-grandfather. His name was Charles Clendenin, um, who came over from Scotland by way of Northern Ireland. Um, he came over with his four sons, and they all were in the um, Continental Army. Mm-hmm. Um, Pre-revolution, as a matter of fact, his son was deeded some of that land because of his service in the Battle of Point Pleasant, which was 1774. Some people consider that the first battle of the revolution. Others say, nah, that's that's Dunmore's War. That's a little bit different. But yeah, mm-hmm. so um, his son, George Clinton, and, um, owned a couple thousand acres at what was then called um, Fort Lee or the mouth of the Elk which is where the Elk River hits the Kanawha River. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, none of that land or wealth filtered down to my generation. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, and that's one of those things that I didn't, I didn't learn until much later in my life. Um, my mother died when I was five um, oh. in a car accident, was hit by a drunk driver, so my dad raised me. Um, I, had, I had contact with, with my mom's side of the family, but not – not a lot of contact. So, and what contact I had, they didn't know a lot of those stories that I have found through the years. So, mm. um, descended from uh, from the Clendenins that settled a, a big part of West Virginia. Um, that was, again, in the in the pioneer days when literally there was nothing there. Right, right. They they, they took an axe and chopped down and made a made a fort. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly, my my sixth great grandfather Charles Clendenin is buried under what is now Canal Boulevard, which is the kind of the main drag through Charleston that runs really? along the river. Um, I, I don't know that to be true. There's a little monument there in his honor on, on the riverbank that says you know, Charles Clendenin is buried here. Mm-hmm. So been there, I've taken pictures of it. What's it like walking through that town, knowing that your family had so much connection to it? And it's. Um, it's very interesting to kind of look through the city that's there now. And, and Charleston's not a huge city, maybe 50,000 people. It's probably a little bit bigger than Biloxi area. Mm-hmm. But to, to imagine that before that was all there. Yeah. And to imagine it before there were houses built all the way up the hillside. Of course, West Virginia, there's no, there's no flat land. So they build literally up the hillside until you get to where it's either too high to get equipment to or until um, you just run out of the slope gets too too high. So you look around from downtown Charleston on the river, which is, of course, the riverbed is the flattest. Sure. The river area is the flattest area. So you kind of look around and you see not skyscrapers, but you see 30-story buildings. Yeah. And you're like, you know, what did this look like? in the late 1700s yeah. when, when my family decided, hey, this looks like a great place to build a fort. Mm-hmm. And, of course, at that time, the, the real concern was attack from Native Americans. And um, there is, there's actually a, a book written by a distant cousin of mine named Greg Clendenin 
that goes over what, what is now called the Clinton and massacre. And, uh, basically they were a frontier family had set up and, and the husband, Archie Clint, Archibald Clinton had gone out, came back when he was there, there was a group of Shawnee Indians who ended up killing him and his hunt party, several of his, I'll call them friends, but the, all the men basically yeah. got killed, scalped the women and children were basically taking taking a squaw with through the Shawnee, and they lived for several years with the Shawnee, and then the the wife escaped, and that that's a kind of a very interesting story. I don't I don't know how much of that is is based on fact, and how much of it is the uh, the artistic license of uh, my distant cousin, but it's it's an interesting story to kind of think back to those times and just what those folks went through. I think there's probably some some truth to that. I mean that that was that was I don't want to say typical, but it was common among Indian tribes when they confronted the settlers and they would kill the men, they would bring the women and they would be indoctrinated in into the tribe, some of them through, you know, sexual abuse and then uh, later they were slowly worked into being treated as 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 people. There's a story that I've heard of a woman who was liberated and she actually escaped the settler society to go back because she was it's a sort of maybe the first case of the what's the what's Stockholm the, syndrome. Stockholm syndrome yeah yeah it's interesting it, it it is and to think back to those days um to me it's just interesting I mean it's not like a like a, a family thing like I, I don't necessarily get all sappy because all oh, my family was all murdered by it's just the way it was I mean, yeah it was exactly just, it was just life yeah and that's that's something i think people don't do enough of is they don't like they view history through a modern lens not not Absolutely. history in the canister or dare i say vacuum of the 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 times the context of the times right. and i think that's it leads to some unnecessary discourse you know, absolutely. So, um, I think I think understanding is not just understanding the the act, but the but the motif behind the act under the pressures and you know norms and values of of the time, as archaic as they may be. Right. You know, and and a lot of that carries over e- even to today. And I think I told you, my wife and I bought a little fifteen acre hobby yeah. farm up. It wasn't a hobby farm. It was brush and woods. Mm-hmm. But it, it was once part of the Ramsey Plantation, mm-hmm. which is kind of the northern Harrison County, southern Stone County. Ramsey is a common name down here, yeah. Yeah, Ramsey Springs is still there. That was, a, that was kind of the headquarters. At one time, there was a big hotel and resort there. But most of that area is now part of the DeSoto National Forest. Okay. So it's very rare to find privately held land in that area. I thought it was weird that you were able to buy in, in the national forest. Right. And so I, my property per se, isn't surrounded by national forest. I have a few neighbors. I have one neighbor on one side. Oh, okay. And then his land abuts the national forest. So, so I got to asking around and some of those, um, original owners after the Mr. Ramsey still have connection to the area. I don't think Mm -hmm. any of them live in that area, but there's a chunk of about 320, acres that is privately held and then down the street there's another 320 acres hmm. which if you've done a lot of um, property you, you know that that's that's like half of a square mile or mm-hmm. half of a section 
And I come to find out that the reason why there are several of those pockets is because after the Civil War, Mr. Ramsey actually deeded plats of land to his former slaves. And many of them stayed on and worked for him mm-hmm. as freed men. Um, That's an amazing story. Those chunks of land, when the federal government came through to buy up land for the DeSoto National Forest, many of those owners who were African-American, you know, this is early 20th century, yeah, they were not given favorable um, property values. So the neighbor to the side, he, maybe he got $100 an acre. Maybe they offered the African-American owners $3 an acre just because that, that was the thing to, to do at that time. Mm. So most of those pockets of land, at least in, in my general area, within 15 miles of where I'm at, mm-hmm. kind of shared that story. Now, some of it is different, but those, land, those lands were, and then they were handed down and split up. So that 320 acres, which was probably deeded to one person at one time, has been chopped up numerous times and and most most places are 10 or more acres but there's still some that have been divided Um, most recently there was a 80 acre plot that was divided between nine kids so they Mm -hmm. chopped it up into almost nine acre lots and then sold some of that off so I consider myself lucky I watched the property for a couple of years Um, the realtor I had actually called like two years before and she called me and said hey look if if you want to move now's the time to move yeah. He's ready to sell. So, okay. Mm. So I threw a crazy low ball offer at him thinking he'd come back and we'd meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, right, right. He accepted it. And oh. I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I'm a farmer now. <laughs> so, so there you and, go. and even there, when literally, the, you couldn't see me to you, mm-hmm. you know, six feet into the woods because mm-hmm. it was so brush and wow. just woods and just nasty. And, and I got in there, you know, clearing it with a machete and an axe. And then I moved to a, a chainsaw, and as I'm in there, I'm thinking, you know, somebody did this before me. Somebody, yeah. somebody 300 years ago came through here with much more rudimentary tools, and they cleared all this off, Yeah, and they made a farm out of it. And, you know, you can still see some of the rows where at one time it, they rode, you know, cotton or corn or yeah. wh- whatever they were growing there. Yeah, you, you could still see that, mm-hmm. and and to think back, you know, I'm I'm out there. Of course, I'm hot and sweaty, and I'm like, ah, I gotta go get a cold drink, sit in my air conditioned <laughs> truck. This is crazy, right. and I just think back to you know 200 years ago, and these 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 folks are out there with, I mean, tools that they probably made yeah, by yeah. hand in a forge that I, are breaking and don't hold an edge. Mm-hmm. And I'm out here with a you know a, a modern chainsaw, and I'm. I'm complaining. Yeah. You know, I did that for a couple of weeks and then I said, I'm getting a bulldozer in here. So I brought a bulldozer in and said, no more of that swinging an ax. Well, so back to, I thought about this when you're talking about West Virginia, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and how it was at the time, you know, kind of pondering what it must have looked like back then when there weren't these 30 story buildings. And, you know, I, I think about that here, like in 1699, whenever, you know, the Biloxi area was, was settled, there was no beach and they had to, they had to like cut their way into it. And they settled in this area where there's, there's gators, there's, there's all these biting fish. There's, uh, these, these fish with the, the crabs with claws and the crawfish with claws. And, uh, 
the snakes that are poisonous, and they somehow manage to settle this area in that thick, you know, Mississippi wood brush. It's 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 really quite amazing. It is, and if you look back historically, a lot of times when those when new areas are settled, mm-hmm. they're settled because they're less desirable. Um, perfect example for me is the Appalachian Mountains. Of course, by the time that the um, the Scots Irish, which is the majority of my ancestors, came to the U.S., they land on the eastern coast. You've got Virginia, Maryland, and that area. It, it's primarily English. Well, that's why that's why most of them were were rounded up and sent to to Ulster, the Ulster County, what's now Northern Ireland. They yeah. were sent there because they they didn't really get along well with the English, so. They hit the, the coast of Virginia, and they're like, no, we're not doing this. We're, <laughs> we're going west. Well, you know, they finally, you go a couple hundred miles west, and you're in the Appalachian Mountains. There were no English there, because why in the world would anybody settle this this place? Yeah. So, um, the biggest thing that they, they ran into were the, the various Native Americans mm-hmm. that, that didn't necessarily settle any um, one area, but they would move through areas that, different times of the year yeah Um, so much like mississippi you know it was like you said who the heck would want to live here you know it's there's no there's no roads there's no i mean there's everything wants to kill you and then as soon as we get camp set up we get five hurricanes in one season yeah exactly exactly Um, and it was the same it was the same in 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 appalachia because you know of course i'm from west virginia but Appalachia really encloses, and I, I consider Central Appalachia to be the true Appalachia. <laughs> New York, New York. I mean, the Appalachian Mountains technically extend all the way down into northern Mississippi, up around Tishomingo and and northern Alabama. Okay, that, that's that's the foothills. So, <laughs> yeah. but these but these folks, of course, they had to be pretty hardy because that. that that's a pretty rough area to live in. You know? Yeah. The winters yeah. are pretty miserable. It's not like you just go out, like even down here, you know, you don't just go out and throw some seeds and grow something. I mean, you're, yeah. you're busting through rocks and trees and mountains and everything else that you're dealing with. And so, yeah, it is interesting the way areas were settled. And uh, it's kind of interesting that my family was a, a part of that uh, in West Virginia. Yeah. we. I don't... <sighs> Maybe it does, but West Virginia and, and those kind of places and the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, it's it should be pretty well known that it's kind of an impoverished area, you know, within America. I, I watched a documentary. I'm not sure if you're a football fan, but of Randy Moss. Randy Moss mm-hmm. grew up, you know, out, out in that area. And the town that in that area, it's, you know, spans the eastern, right. <laughs> eastern side of the United States. But in, I think, Virginia – and he was uh, from a very, very rural, poor town, you know. He grew up in West Virginia. West Virginia was? Okay. Rand, West Virginia. Rand. That sounds familiar. Okay. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and it, it, yeah, for all the reasons that you're describing, the, in, the environmental conditions make it difficult. But, but also the poverty adds another dimension to it because now it becomes a resource issue. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you look back, and, again, pre-coal mining, mm-hmm. um, it was it was an agrarian society. They you basically grew what you ate. You grew. What, there was nowhere to go. Let, let me go get a job. You, you didn't go get a job. You you made everything on your homestead that you needed. Right. If you needed 
you either grew it yourself, made it yourself, or traded mm-hmm. something that you made or grew for that. Um, so really in the late 1800s, they, they said, hey, West Virginia's got a lot of coal. Let's start mining this coal. Mm-hmm. And then the, coal, the big, what I like to call the coal boom, happened. Well, that has since gone on, and, and we're really moving back into that impoverished society. The coal days, uh, it was a boom town. I mean, there's yeah. there's little small towns now in West Virginia that are, you know, smaller than Van Cleve that 100 years ago had 100,000 people. Mm. I mean, they, they were huge. Welch, West Virginia, which is what I like to call down in the coal fields, um, that, that's a perfect example. I mean, it was a booming metropolis 100 years ago. Well, as coal mining changed, as everything changes, nothing lasts forever, um, you, you needed less manpower, it became more mechanized, and, mm-hmm. and now underground mining is, I mean, that's a thing of the past. Now they're doing mountaintop mining, which is, you know, you need one guy on a bulldozer and one guy in a dump truck. So hmm. that's, that's a big difference. So yeah. it has changed considerably, um, the economy. Now where, and it's funny because you talk about West Virginia being impoverished, and that's the same mentality of everyone. And I know you've, you've learned this being from Mississippi and traveling in the military. They're like, oh, you're from Mississippi. The Gulf Coast of Mississippi is vastly different for sure than the Delta. Yeah. I, mean, I just went up to the Delta a couple of weeks ago. Not saying one's good or bad. I'm just saying there's, they're, they're there's very no, different. There's no comparison sure. between Gulfport and Itabina. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just they're, they're, it's night and day difference. West Virginia is the same way, yeah. on a little bit smaller scale because it's a smaller state. Mm-hmm. Um, where I grew up in between Huntington and Charleston, very little coal mining. Uh, I think the county that I grew up in, I think there was one coal mine um, that had been closed down for 50 years whenever I grew up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there had been a few um, coal mines throughout history, but it wasn't a big coal mining area like it was an hour to the south or an hour to the east of where I grew up. Um, so those areas were really hit hard. Where I, where I grew up, it was, it was largely chemical plants. Mm. Um, and they even call the, the area of the Kanawha River there the Chemical Valley. Um, Union Carbide actually started in that area, which has now been absorbed into Dow Pharmaceutical. But every chemical company that you can think of at one point had a plant there right around where I grew up. So we were, of all the areas of West Virginia, we were probably the most um, economically diverse, and the, we were better off economically than a lot of those areas that were in what I call the coal fields. And when you say coal fields in West Virginia, just equate that to the Delta in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You know, at one time it was, it was a lot more going on there, and it's kind of been through its peak and, and it's fallen. Um, so, you know, they replace coal mining now with, uh, with opiates and that's kind of the, the big struggle that they have yeah. now. Um, sad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, sad. that's an endemic problem, you know, across, across the U S but when you have communities that are more impoverished than others, you know, it definitely hits them harder. Right. So, oh yeah, it's, it's an opportunity, um, to make a buck. And when you don't have a buck, you, you do, yeah. you, you do 
what you do. That's right. That's right. You do what you have to do, yeah. you know, to get that buck. Um, man, it's incredible. So, so let me ask you this. So you went from West Virginia. What got you into the Air Force? So, it, again, no short stories here, but um, <laughs> I was kind of a, I was a horrible kid. I mean, I was, like I said earlier, you know, my, this my, is high pot, I'm kettle, you know, like, <laughs> so my, uh, my mom died when I was five. My dad was thrust into the, into a position that no one, no one wants to be in. He was mm-hmm. 32. He's got two kids. He's got to raise now. And, and he just by himself and he wasn't really prepared for that. Um, well, who would be losing, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And, and I understand that now. I didn't so much understand that growing up, mm-hmm. but, um, but we were, we were, we had struggles. Uh, I mean, it was, it was tough. I remember, um, several times, I mean, we always owned a home. Um, my dad and, and my mom bought the, the house. Matter of fact, that my sister still owns, um, and then three years later is when she, she died in an accident, mm-hmm. um, car accident. So he was kind of thrust into this horrible situation. And to, um, I guess, to deal with that, he turned to alcohol. Mm-hmm. So he spent the rest of his life and, uh, looking for answers in the bottom of a, of a bottle. And you and I both know they're not there. No. So ne- we never had anything. I grew up poor, uh, Never having, uh, several times not having electricity, not having running water. Um, now we lived in a in an area that had electricity and running water. It's just right. like my dad didn't pay the bill or couldn't pay the bill, and and I grew up kind of kind of holding that against him. Like you know, why did you do this? And then as I became an adult, I was like, holy crap, what would I have done? You know, I I wouldn't have held up that much. I mean, I always had a place to sleep. I always had some food. But we never had any of the extras. So going to college was never, never even fathomed that. So I didn't take school seriously. I was a, I was a bad kid. I mean, I have had to go back and apologize to so many of my teachers. So time I get to high school, um, my dad was, he was a, a very strict disciplinarian. I mean, he, he, would, he would definitely make me know that it was not acceptable to fail classes. It was not acceptable to get kicked out of school. It was not. By the time I reached high school, the man was tired. <laughs> he just, he kind of, he kind of let me go, and I went. And by the time I was 18, I'd been in high school uh, three years. Had gotten kicked completely out of high school. Um, at that time, they had a rule if you missed so many unexcused days, mm-hmm. they just expelled you for the semester and you could come. So I, I go to go back. And the county that I grew up in, we had four high schools and then a centralized vocational school. Okay. We called it the trade school because that's where you, if you weren't going to go to college, that's where you went. Well, I, I didn't want to do that, but basically the principal said, look, I can't deal with you anymore, so you're going to have to go to the trade school and let them have you for a little while. Mm. So, fair enough. So I came back, went half a day to the high school, and then we took a bus over to the, to the trade school. I didn't really want to be there, but... They put me in an electronics class. I was like, I don't know anything about this. The electronics instructor was, he was a divine appointment. God put him on this earth <laughs> to see the 17-year-old Jeff Collins and say, you need to come in my office. So I, I'd been going to the school there for 
I don't know, four or five months. And he pulls me into his office. Now, this is 1990-ish, 91-ish, somewhere in there. He pulls me into his office. He shuts the door, fires up a cigarette, which was completely not allowed <laughs> at that time, but he didn't care. Um, and, and he had my, you know, my little student file in front of him. Mm-hmm. He said, son, sit down right there. I need to tell you something. I said, okay. What you, and I really liked him. He was a really nice guy. And uh, he said, you've been at the high school for three years. You're finishing up three years. That means you should have 21 credits. You have four, and two of those are in PE, and one of those is in my class. What are you going to do with your life? I said, well, I'm going to finish high school, and I'm going to try to get a scholarship. He said, stop. You're not going to do that. He said, here's what you're going to do. He said, you're going to be 18 at the end of the school year. He said, you need to quit school. You need to go get your GED, and you need to go in the Air Force. Really? I said, uh, and of course, for a teacher to tell you that is, they'd probably put him in jail today, if not for smoking in a classroom, (laughs) for telling me that I needed to quit school. I'm not sure which which would be viewed as worse. (laughs) So so I sat there and I I was like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. Why would I? He said, so here's 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 your your path. You have to have uh, 22 credits to graduate. You're setting it. Four or, or whatever it was. He said, the most you can get in a year is seven. He said, you're not going to go to summer school. You're not going to go to weekend school. He said, you'd be 22 before you could get all of your credits that you need. Wow. He said, in the state of West Virginia, you can't attend public school past 21. He said, there is no possible way for you to finish school and go through this plan. He said, this is what you need to do. I said, no, you're crazy. I'm I'm going to go back to, to building these DC circuits on my bench. Leave me alone. <laughs> so he, he kind of put that in there. And then a couple of weeks later, there was an army recruiter showed up and, you know, he hemmed me into the office and then there was a, he brought a Marine Corps recruiter in and he, he brought them all in. And uh, the Air Force guy came in and he was pretty laid back and pretty chill. And at that time they, they, they weren't recruiting hard. Um, so he's like, yeah, we'll take you if, if you want, you know, and I, I did outstanding on my ASVAB I'd already tell you everybody had to take that in high school so I did he said yeah your scores you can do whatever you want in the Air Force I was like okay well I'll see so Ron Peters was his name he was the teacher ended up becoming the principal of the, the, the trade school so did he allow teachers to smoke as a principal absolutely not <laughs> um unless you were in his office yeah, that's right and, and he continued because even after I joined the military I went back to see him and, uh, and I came into the building, and I, I'll never forget this. You know, I met him outside, and, and I was walking in, and uh, we were going back to his office, and he turned to me, and he said, son, take your head off in the building. <laughs> you know, I had a ball cap on. And I'm like, come on, Ron, we're going to your office to smoke cigarettes and, 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 and cuss. And he's like, take we your break, head off in the building. But we break rules in my office, not and, everywhere else. <laughs> and, that, and that was exactly the way it was. But um, – and, and I and I maintained a relationship with him, and he passed away in probably 2002. Mm. Um, just a great guy. I mean, he's just he was one of those. He he was the guy I needed um, because the oh you need to study harder and and bring your grades up and get into college. I just it wasn't going to happen. So I followed Ron's lead. I uh, dropped out of high school on my 18th birthday. Um, he worked out some kind of deal where I could come back as a post-secondary student to his electronics class mm. um, while I was 
taking classes to prepare me for the GED, which basically was the next time they gave it. Um, next time they gave it, I, I took it. I passed flying callers, no, no problem. He brought in the recruiter again. Next thing I know, they said, well, we can get you in, but you have to quick ship. I was like, what's that mean? Can you leave tomorrow? So let me go see if my dad will give me a ride. <laughs> my dad said, heck yeah, I'll give you a ride to the recruiter. <laughs> so he dropped me off at the recruiter and said, fellas, I've had 18 years. That's all I can do. He's yours now. <laughs> and, uh, and I went in the, in the Air Force, and it was absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, I didn't like everything about the Air Force, still don't, but it was absolutely the best decision that Ron ever made for me. And, I, and, I, and I'm eternally grateful for him, uh, to him for that. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that some, we won't have as many people being that sort of Ron figure for you because it seems like we're trying to get kids to be cognitively independent earlier right. without wisdom. And so we need people to kind of say, you think you know what you're, <laughs> you know what you're trying to do, but you don't. Like, these are the reasons why. If you go in this direction, you're probably going to have a moderate degree of success. And at this point, that's all you can hope for, right. you know. But that's a tough conversation to, to have with, with anybody. But, again, in the environment back in the day, it sounds like your dad sided with the teachers, right? As opposed to today, it seems like parents are siding with the children and forcing teachers to kind of prove their oh, analysis of their child. Absolutely. My dad would never have sided with me <laughs> um, because he knew I was, and most of the time I was wrong. And even yeah. if I wasn't, then that's what I got for letting my reputation get in front of me. Yeah. So, uh, no, he never, I mean, it was never, a, oh, that teacher just doesn't know what they're doing. It was more like, boy, what is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you're right today. You know, I've, I've had kids in school last 20 years or so and so many of the educators they're in a tough spot because they're in a lose 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 situation you know you got school board handling them oh you got to get these test scores up you got the parents hounding them that oh why are you picking on little johnny well because little johnny's a hellion and he needs to be picked on and yeah you need to instill some discipline in him um, when I was in high school, I got, I got paddled, uh, I, I think four times. And the last time was my senior year. I was doing this really stupid thing. There was a movie about this. I've, I've, I've told the story in the podcast, but I was throw, I was dipping a pickle in mustard and a pickle in ketchup. And I was throwing it on the glass and timing to see which one went, uh, you know, like how far and what amount of time, which is honestly like that's to science. some degree, yeah, it's a physics problem, you know? <laughs> but, but I'd been doing it all week and it was Thursday and the, one of the principals caught me. He says, all right, Brian, let's go. You're going home. I was like, for what? He's like, I just saw you throw pickles, and I've been trying to figure out who's been doing that all week. I caught you right-handed. Let's go. And so we get in the office, and Ocean Springs at the time had a policy to where if you didn't opt out of it specifically for your child, then they could paddle you. But it was up to the child, which I think is brilliant, to make the decision because if you were at the point where you were going to be suspended or, or not suspended, sent home from school, then you had a choice to make where you could either get paddled, they document it, they have to have a witness. Right. And then I think it was like four licks. And then you went back to class and that was it. Well, what do you think most people did? They just, Took their licks exactly, and went back to class. Exactly. And if the parents and, wanted to know, and then they could the call the principal it. didn't call your parents. Right. So, so, 
he said, uh, he said, look, Brian, I'm not going to give you a choice this time. <laughs> uh, we're just going to send you home. And I was like, please don't do that. You know, my dad's a single parent, you know, he's working on base at the hospital. Uh, my dad was a foreign, he was a mm-hmm. surgical tech. So now he runs medical simulation at Keesler. Okay. A- anyway, uh, he was on speakerphone, and he says, Mr. Bell, we've got your son here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and send him home, so we ask that you come by and pick him up. And I heard this deep sigh from my dad, and he goes, okay, I can be there in like 45 minutes. Um, have you all paddled him yet? And he goes, uh, he goes, no, sir, uh, if you're not familiar, because we're not giving him that choice, he's being sent home. And he goes, right, right, right. Like, like he understood that, but he goes, uh, could y'all just paddle him for me? I'll be there in 45 minutes. Get the party started. <laughs> and my principal looked at me, smiled. He said, Mr. Belford, for you, I can do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when I went to school, it was a similar, mm-hmm. but they had to send, I want to say they sent a, home, a, a note home that said, okay, This is what we did. The, yeah. No, they said, oh, okay. This is your option. You know, Jeff did this. He can either be suspended for three days or he can take a paddling. Well, I don't think any of the schools knew what my dad's signature looked like because I signed everything for him. So I would, you know, get on the bus and be like, yep, three licks. Yep. <laughs> don't, I don't have to sit out of school. I don't have to explain to my dad why I'm not getting up, getting ready to go to school. Everything's good. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, we were poor. We didn't have home phone. I mean, we didn't have a phone at all. So if they wanted to get a hold of him, they either had to drive out to our house mm. or they had to send him a letter. They sent him a letter. Guess what? I always check the mail. Those never made it into the house. <laughs> so, like I said, I was a bad kid, um, which I have turned from those days. <laughs> I, have, I have seen the errors in my ways, and, and I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a horrible person now. I think everybody confronts that. They mm-hmm. confront it in, in, in some way or another, and I think that's part of the human story. You know, there's, there's people who join the Air Force, and they confront that. Mm-hmm. And then, but those have real, real consequences. There's a story that, that you should, or this, this idea that you shouldn't just outright protect, protect children from the dangers of the world, but rather distill them down to where it's an acceptable pain for them. And they should experience the pain. And there's, there's plenty of people that I've run into being a supervisor in the Air Force when I was active duty that I had to tell my leadership, because you know, everything rolls downhill, oh, yeah. right? And so the supervisor is the first person. And one thing I told my last uh, chief was <laughs> he was telling me all the things I needed to do better. And I was, I was, I was, I was pretty hot, you know, mm-hmm. like I was a fast burner. And when <laughs> I stopped, I said, sir, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you right there. I said, I want, I want you to know the way I'm seeing this problem. And I said, you, the commander, me, and anybody else in this unit is not qualified to fix this problem. This is, this is the, this is the outcome of 20 years of bad parenting. Right. So it's time that things become hard for this child and they experience how to transcend that pain. Right. That's, that's our role. It's not fixing the parenting strategies. We're going to deal with this specifically. And he stopped and, 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 <laughs> and he's like, okay. Um, you know, then we got into a more productive conversation about how to move forward. But yeah, it's, it's weird, man. It, it is. And, and I have now two daughters who are teachers, imagine wow. that, um, and their whole lives, they, I always, my wife and I always took the side of the teacher, 
even if the teacher, we knew they were wrong. Because you know what? When you get out in the real world, you're going to have some pretty crappy bosses that you have to learn to adapt to. That's a great point. And, and, and my kids have done quite well for themselves because they had to adapt to some, some crappy. And there's crappy teachers out there. There's crappy principals. There's crappy there's a whole lot more crappy parents out there. Yeah. And, and I, I, I would see them. I would, I would go to the parent-teacher conferences where they group everybody up, and they're like, well, how come you let little Johnny do this and that? And, you know, the teacher wants to just say, because you're a horrible parent. Mm-hmm. Um, when my kids would get in trouble, they would handwrite a note to the teacher apologizing for what they did. And I, I had teachers call me, and they're like, uh, Mr. Collins, did, did, did you make? I said, absolutely, I did. They said, well, that's the first letter I've ever gotten like that. And why, and why is that important for you? Well, one, because I have always instilled in my children two things. Respect yourself and be considerate of others. And to me, when you, and it's, it's almost crazy hearing this come out of my mouth, but when you disrespect your educators or your teachers that says more about you than it does about them and that's not respecting yourself so it's inconsiderate to others which means you're not respecting yourself and and I truly think if you go that route in life you will be successful if you just are respect yourself and be considerate to others you get so much further and doesn't mean you have to like them doesn't mean that you have to agree with them you just have to be respectful to them. So um, one of my daughters ran into some some issues at a Mardi Gras parade one year. Um, I won't mention which one of the daughters it was, mm-hmm. um, just because she knows if she's listening. <laughs> but she got arrested for drinking underage. And um, I, after I convinced my wife that we could not kill her and throw her off of the I-110 bridge... <laughs> We took her home, and she had to write letters to every police officer in Diaville that was a part of her arrest and apologize for wasting their time. And, uh, and again, they, and I knew them because I used to work for the city of Diaville. You know, they, they let me know that, hey, that's important. And I think it's important that we understand the consequences that those actions, something as simple as a 17-year-old, getting arrested at Mardi Gras for drinking. I told my wife, I said, I'm just thankful that that's all. I'm just thankful she hadn't pulled any of the stunts that I pulled when I was 17. Oh, for so, sure. So I'm okay with that. I'm upset with her. I'm disappointed in her more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but we still love her. We can't kill her and throw her off of the bridge. <laughs> um, and, and she immediately after she, she worked uh, at, at a grocery store there uh, in Gulfport, she paid her own fine. I didn't pay her fine. I said, I don't care if you pay the fine. You can go sit in jail till you can pay it. I'm go. It's summertime. You know, it was coming up to the end of the school year. I said, it's summertime. You can go sit in jail. And, and I was serious, and she knew I was serious, which was much more than that. Now, she's gone on to be a very successful adult. I love her dearly. I'm very proud of her. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of her biggest snafu, which I like to bring up. Every time we get together, just so I can remind her how disappointed her mother was of her that day. But no, she she does well. She's a she's a, a she's a 
policy analyst for a large banking company here okay. on the coast. So um, very successful. Lives kind of around the corner here, past the elementary school. Okay. Um, married, good kid. Um, as a matter of fact, when she was working at the grocery store, my wife and I knew the store manager. He gave her a job as a, a bagger or a clerk or whatever. Well, within about six months, she had moved up, and she was, I mean, she's 17, 18 years old, and she's the the customer service desk lead or manager or whatever mm-hmm. they call her. Yeah. So my wife called our friend and said, hey, look, you know, don't don't be giving her any, you know, special treatment. Yeah. And the guy told my wife, he said, you don't understand. She comes to work every day. She's polite and respectful to me and the customers and her her coworkers, she doesn't come back from break smelling like weed. She she shows up when she's supposed to, and she works until she goes home. She, I wish I had a hundred like her. <laughs> um, now she probably didn't realize that at the time, but a lot of that was her constantly being berated with, you know, there are consequences for your actions. Be respectful for others. Uh, be respectful to yourself and be courteous to others. And and that I mean I truly think that goes much further than algebra or history or any other yeah. subject that you learn in school. And I think that our educators are handcuffed and they can't teach that concept anymore. You know, yeah. they're there to teach. Uh, we've got this test coming up. Every, all of our students, you know, all of our first graders have to know their multiplication tables and all of our second graders have to know divide by 12. And, and they're so focused on that that they're really missing out on those true lessons in life. And I think a lot of parents out there, don't have those lessons for whatever reason. Well, I think we're like four, four generations removed from the education protocol in America to include topics like discourse, to include uh, philosophy and, and, and the sort of a deeper dive into humanities rather than English composition and reading. Right. And within those, within those disciplines, you learn about that. You know, you, you learn about, you know, what it means to be polite, what sort of, what atonement is, which, which when you say that you force them to write an apology, you're, that's an atonement. And to apologize for something, I wrote an article for, for, for LinkedIn um, that was uh, apologizing even when you know you're, you're in the right. And it's one of those Absolutely. things where we, where we do things, maybe you weren't right in the behavior, but as a consequence of the behavior you put other people under stress, which I like to tell people my leadership philosophy is you have a constitutional right to be a dumbass. Okay. But exactly. generally you want to live in your own hell. You don't want your hell to be imparted on others. Exactly. And so there's this idea that, that I have that if you tell me that you didn't like that, it did something. My default response is an apology because I know what I, I don't know if I agree with you, but I do know that I don't want you to be hurt by me. And right. that was not my intention. So that's, that's at least what I'm going to apologize for because I respect you enough for that. And we're going to have a conversation so I can understand better. Exactly. And, and that carries on really through our whole human nature. And, and as we look around our country today, it's easy to say, oh, this country has just gone down the tubes. Same thing my grandfather said. My dad probably sure. said it. His grand- you know, every, everybody looks at the next generation and says, man, they're soft. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah soft yeah. is the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> They're horrible. This, this country is doomed. Uh, you know, it's, it's human nature, and, and every society has evolved. If you go back and look at from the beginning societies all the way to today, none of them stay the same. And mm-hmm. 
for the most part, I think that's a good thing. I think we have moved um, society as a whole forward, and um, I think we will continue to go forward. But it's not a linear progression. There no. are some fallbacks. That's right. Um, and I, I, I'm afraid that we're about to face one of those fallbacks, and that probably won't be corrected in my lifetime. Um, but things are so much different today. Uh, when I was a kid, if I wanted to know what was going on in high school, I had to go ask around and meet up with my friends face to face and talk. Sometimes you could, you could make a phone call, but you know, that was not all that common unless you were, you know, trying to hook up with one of the, one of the girls in school. (laughs) But you know, two guys, you didn't just call your, your buddy and, and sit on the phone for hours. Yeah, uh, you know, you went out and you fished or hunt or, or, or just rode around in a car with skipped them, school you, and yeah. went down to the creek and drank beer or whatever. <laughs> Either way, it was a social interaction. Right. And and I'm not sure how two people ever met up during that time because I, I don't even. Th- I guess you had to say, "Hey, meet you know, meet me at the flagpole at four o'clock," and that's how it went. You know, yeah. you didn't. I mean, even coming here, I ended up parking in your neighbor's driveway, and they <laughs> they came out looking at me like, "Who's this guy? Why is he?" A-? And uh but I just picked up my phone and called you. And I had GPS here, but I can't. Uh, this is a weird. Did, street, didn't pinpoint yeah. it. Yeah, you know, I was like, wait, wait am I, which street am I on? But uh, so, yeah. But I do think that when a hundred years from now, when they look at the fall of the American Empire, if you will, I think we can definitely trace it to the share button on social media. Yeah, and it's it's so easy today for you to post something about whatever controversial topic that there is. And then I'm like, you know, I agree with Brian. I'm going to share that. So now my four or 500 friends see it. And 10 of them say, yeah, Jeff likes this. Brian seems like, yeah, I'm going to share it. So we end up in these echo chambers. Yeah. And, and I think that's really what we're seeing in this country today is a direct result of that. I don't think this w- this upheaval that we've had would not have happened even during the social rights movements of the sixties or the, the, any of the other areas, because we didn't have that communication. We didn't have the ability for one, you know, whack job wherever they're at to spread to millions of people in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, We've never had that in, in human society. I think we are, we are rewriting human sociology with, the internet and and not so much with the internet because I mean I I was on the internet from the very first time that I I mean I remember using my buddy's Atari uh, 800XL with a <laughs> with a modem that you hung you put the 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 handset from the house phone down on and you called into a bulletin board and you know you could download a message that said hello and I mean we thought I mean we thought we were fixing to launch spaceships. <laughs> We really did. This is it. And, and to see that now, you know, now I have, you know, the collective knowledge of humanity on my phone. Yeah. There's and, there's more technology information on your phone than they had to go to the moon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's probably more in my watch. Yeah, maybe. Um, definitely yours. Yeah. One of the fancy watches. <laughs> you know, I got, I got the 1992 Cassie going over here. But still, it's still, still going strong. It still tells time. Um, but yeah, I, I truly think that when we look back, or not we, we'll be long gone, but when sociologists look back at America was doing great, what happened, I think that's going to be a part of it, is, is that social media, while it's very 
powerful and I love it and I consume the heck out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't get into those echo chambers. If you look at my group lists, my friends, if you will, on all my social medias, I have folks from all walks of life. Of course, being from West Virginia, being a, a veteran, most of my jobs up until nursing were very conservative yeah, centric for sure. Um, professions. I mean, I don't know how it is today, but I can tell you 15 years ago, the military was 97% conservative and three people that didn't talk about politics. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of, kind of the deal. So a lot of my friends, if you will, lean towards, lean towards the right. And mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. I ignore them as much as I do my, my friends who are all, um, hard left. Yeah. I still love them. I still talk to them. That's right. And I, I enjoy um, engaging in, in courteous conversation with those folks. You learn a lot about that. And, and I think what you end up learning is we all want the same thing. Deep down, when you cut through all of the BS, you can take any topic. We all want the same thing. Um, whether it's, I, I think you had mentioned this before, yeah, the gun control debate. Mm-hmm. the right side, the left side, wherever you're at in that, your purpose in gun control is you don't want to get shot. You yeah. don't want to walk into a movie theater and get shot. That's it. Both sides of that argument have different perspectives on how to get to that point. Yeah. We forget that we're both fighting for the same thing. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're all wanting to not go to a movie theater or a church or a restaurant and get shot. Yeah. Some people say, well, the easiest way to do that is to eliminate all guns. Perfectly logical explanation. Yeah. If we get rid of all guns, there will be no more shooters. Then you have to come in and say, how do we do that? Well, in this country, as long as we have the um, Second Amendment, you can't do that. Right. And that's a whole nother debate whether mm-hmm. or not you change the second amendment the second amendment it is what it is it says what it says as it currently stands that's that's as it stands yeah. I, I think we've gone as far with gun control as you can with the second amendment reading the way it does and i'm not advocating that we eliminate or change or keep the second amendment i'm just saying from my perspective you can't do anything else until you change the second amendment so if you want to go forward with gun control you need to change the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. I'm not for or against that. That's the Constitution is a living document. If the people of this country want to change that, then that's what we'll do. Yeah. But your far right, most of your far right gun nuts, they want to have a gun for the same reason. They don't want to go to a movie theater and get shot. Mm-hmm. And if anybody's shooting, they want to be they 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 want to be able to protect themselves. Yeah. So we fail to realize we're both looking at the same goal. We're just finding different ways to get there. Whereas if, if if you and I sat across this table and you were hard left for gun control, and I don't know, maybe you are, that's fine. Uh, and maybe I'm far right. I'm not really either. I'm kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't want to go get shot in a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. And if you can give me a solid way to do that either way, then I'll, I'll say, okay, thumbs up. I'm going, I'm all for that. Right. Um, I don't want my family, you know, murdered in a movie theater. That's where, and that's where we need to be. We need to see, so often we, we look at what separates us whether the, rather than what, what we have in common. 
what's our differences? Well, you know, this person may be this, this way. And again, like I said, we just don't want to get shot. Yeah. Let's, let's start a conversation there. Mm-hmm. Let's start a conversation of we so often in this country. Now we, we kind of have our, our talking papers for, Oh, you're, you're a left, you're a Democrat. Here's your talking points. I know I can't stand that. Oh, well, you know, and <laughs> one of my employees at work, he, he likes to bring up, well, you know, what if I'm gay and I want to own a gun? Where do I fall? I said, well, yeah. you're going to have to sort that out. He's like, and, and we have the same conversations, and he is definitely <clears throat> differs on me from a lot of, a lot of our views and opinions. Um, but that doesn't affect your respect- view of Absolutely him not. as an individual, his or family. An employee. Yeah, exactly. No, not at all. He yeah. just thinks differently. But he, you know, we talk about, just like you and I are talking, mm-hmm. um, and he says, you know, we have become so ingrained into that. Oh, let me see. Let me see what the let me yeah. see what the party line is on on that. Oh, see here, I, I have to be against gay marriage because I want to keep my guns. Well, there's no comparison there's, with that. Well, there's no oh, connection. Wait, wait. wait. Uh, nope, I can't vote for Prop 65 and vote for this other part. I mean, there's there, so often we 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 have to fall back to those you know those party lines that. It's killing us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. I had Alan Rowe on, on here, and he's, he's, in his own words, he's, he's more left than, than the left, than the left establishment. <laughs> right. and, and, and fine. Now, was he the social worker? Yes, yes. From, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so we, we had a conversation on, on a few different topics, mm-hmm. and, you know, he was like, how are you not left-leaning? I was like, because I view the world under a basic principle of, of the rules in this country are, are formulated by by the Constitution, and I firmly believe that government should only exist insofar as they're absolutely needed. And our community, I know more about what you need. This is the first time we've ever met. I know more about what you need and what your culture is like than some asshole in Washington. Right. You know, so, so, so based on that, I think that, and again, the left will say community, the right will say community, but community exists here. It doesn't exist in Washington, you know? And so, and so at the end of the day, as somebody who doesn't want a large expansive government because I don't want to be told what to do because I believe in the value of life, liberty, and, pro- and, and property and the value of the 10th amendment that right. it, it doesn't say in the constitution you can do that. So now it's left to the states and the people respectively. Right. So to me, things like gay marriage, mm-hmm. I don't care what two consenting adults are, are wanting to do in their bedroom. I don't care. I want, there's a meme going around Facebook. It's probably old and I'm the last to get it, but it's, uh, my, it says, like, my position on gun laws. And it says, I want my, I want my gay friend to defend their pot farm with guns. <laughs> and that's it. Like, I just, on, on that issue, it's so, it's so simple to me. You right. know, and I don't understand how that's not a right-wing position. That one's so easy. You don't want, you don't want somebody telling what, what two consenting people can do right. in their life. Great, yeah. To me, that's, that's the concern. That, that has to be, like, a fundamental conservative position but i i don't get it i just it doesn't make sense to me you know but i think that's probably what caused a lot of a lot of the stalls in congress as well as well is that they're voting with the party they're not voting with the individual which we lose out on that correct you know like there should be i had mayor shay dobson in here he's he's the mayor of ocean springs and we kind of talk about this and at the mayoral level, when you're most connected to the organics of the country, you don't vote along a party line. Right. 
you know, like, like you shift. The fact that you declared is probably just a byproduct of American politics itself, but do you, are you actually consistent in having a right-wing philosophy in the role of local government? No, not if you're successful. Right. <laughs> You've got to cross the line because it's people that we're dealing with, and they're far too complex to be reduced to a two-party duality, in my opinion. What are your thoughts? I, I totally agree. <laughs> and, and I think that in that duality, or a friend of mine used to call it a duopoly. Duopoly. That, and that's what you it know, is, yeah. It's, it's you have to, to be in politics in this country. You have to be right or left. Now, different states call those different, different things. You know, on sure. a national level, we call it Republican, Democrat. Mm-hmm. You have to be one of those because you know why? Because if you're not, you don't get any of the support. You don't get any of the money. You don't get any of the airtime. That's and right. It's, it's very hard to to kind of get your name out there and be taken seriously. Um, and not that I'm advocating for any particular person in this coming up election, but you know I think there's a there is a third party candidate. I think Joe, Joe Jorgensen. Jorgensen. Yeah. Who is probably more middle of the road than that aligns with the majority of the American person because I, I truly don't think America is left or right. I think most of us are in the middle and we, we lean a little bit, you know, we pick one thing that's important to us. We're kind of in the middle and they say, Oh, you know, we're all for gun rights. Oh, I'm way over here. Oh, we're against abortion. Oh, I'm way over here. And, and we get so single focused on that, that we can't, you know, let our gay friends control, you know, protect yeah. their pot farm with their, with their assault rifle. Yeah, exactly. It, because it just, it, it makes our head hurt. Cause mm-hmm. we're like, Oh, that's, it's not on the sheet. Exactly. <laughs> where do I get, where, where in the flow chart is that? Yeah. And, and I think in order for us to, to move forward, I think we just got to throw all that away and just get back to being, hey, Brian, do you want to get shot in a movie theater? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we not do that? I mean, yeah. that's, that's really where we need to go. And, and you do see that more at the local level because it's easy to sit in Washington or to sit remote from a situation and say, I don't care about, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way it should be. This is the policy. This is this is what the people want. But whenever Shea Dobson has to look at and say, "Yeah, Brian, I'm sorry, I can't pave your street this year. We don't have the funds for it because, you know, we had to hire two new firefighters and a new police officer this year." Mm-hmm. That that connects different. You know, whenever they have to go to to some someone else and say, "You know, no, the city can't support your your." your drug rehab program this year because we had to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, where on a, from a remote level, you may be like, well, you know, drug rehab programs aren't really the, that, that's not in the constitution. That's, that's not in the, in the state constitution. We shouldn't be doing that. Is it something that's needed? I, me personally, I think so. Um, but it's different. I mean, when you know that person, when you're sitting across the table from them looking at it, you get a different perspective. For sure. Much the same as if you're debating on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you're debating much different than you would with me. Mm-hmm. Sitting, you know, five feet or six feet, or six feet, at least six feet apart <laughs> per CDC recommendations. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's, it's, it's tough as well because when we're face-to-face like this, we get the nonverbals as well. And we get the context of speech, right. the variance of speech, and we understand the message as it's actually being delivered. Also, I'm going to pitch the humanities again in here. Right. The proper use of language is important as well. My fa- when I'm on like a special project team that's kind of um, something 
when I was in the military and even at banking, when I wanted to achieve like an outcome that was, it wasn't clear and it required us to kind of brainstorm and innovate, they were not allowed to use the word but because but disregards everything you said previously. Like, like if you go to your wife and say, I love you, but hey, your cooking was great, but my wife's family's guilty about this. They, they, they have zero conflicts, but boy, when it comes to food, they will let you know. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's such a funny thing. So that word, having an understanding of vocabulary and language, that affects things as well. And, and it might be small nuances and it might even be hyperbolic, but it's, uh, it adds to the context of the situation and it makes your message a little more clear and people aren't very good at delivering that message. So, um, And I think that where we fall short with social media is is it while it is a communication platform yeah it's, it's a horrible way to communicate for sure horrible way to communicate and it's very easy to get wrapped up into those echo chambers of yeah and and social media manipulates us to a certain extent algorithmically to a, for to, sure to a big extent yeah they say yeah. okay he liked bronze post on linkedin so i'm going to show him more things like what Brian, well, I already like that. Show me something I may like that's different than what, yeah. what Brian says. You know, show me, show me an opposite view. And, and there was a time in this country where communications companies had to do that. They had to do, I think it was called the fair time or the, basically if, if they presented one side of the, the topic, they had to present the other side. Was it fair well. use? Was it the fair, fair use act? It was something along those lines, yeah. but, but TV's, at least TV stations at that time, if they, you know, if they aired something that was considered far right, they had to give equal time to something that was um, far left. And, and I'm not going to say that they were always balanced or you always got it, but it's much different than what we have today where I can sit in my little bubble, which I don't do this because I, I like to engage with people from both sides because mm-hmm. I, we're all in this together. Whether, you know, there's never going to be a time where it's, all right, all the right wingers line up over here, all the left wingers line up over. Okay, you go to that side of the Mississippi and you go to that side of the Mississippi Mm -hmm. and don't ever talk to each other. (laughs) Because people are going to change. They're Mm -hmm. they're going to go. I mean, when when I was growing up, I mean, I was, I mean, I was right at concrete. I mean, you know, that's just kind of the way I was raised that, you know, it was cut and dry this way and, you know, I, and then I went into the military and it was kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I think you're probably 10, 15 years younger than me. So you probably came in a little bit behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we were talking about, about gays earlier. And when I went in, that was the only group at that time that you could still make fun of. Mm-hmm. Not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that was the culture that was at the, the context, time. Context at the time. That so. was the context at the time. So that, I mean, we had gone through the, the, the racial inequalities of the 60s, 70s, and, and to a large part, the 80s, and we had gotten past that. Mm-hmm. So really, as a, as a group, the only group that it was still okay and acceptable to poke fun at were homosexuals. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that's right or wrong. We had not open, but we had plenty of people who were, who were homosexual. Everybody knew it. They just didn't 
They just weren't open about it. Yeah. And they couldn't be. And they couldn't be yeah. because they, they, they risked being kicked basically out. kicked out or imprisoned mm-hmm. or, or whatever else. But we knew um, was was never really an issue with me. But, you know, now it, it's completely changed. And that's mm-hmm. been, in the, I think, the last 10 years that that's changed. I think it's great. You know, whatever whatever you want to do, like you said, whatever you want to do in your bedroom, I don't want to know about. I don't want to know about what you do um, in your bedroom. I don't want you to know what I do in my bedroom. Yeah. But but it was a different. It was a different context at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of those things that we did in the early '90s in the military would probably end up in court martial now. Mm-hmm. You know, I and I distinctly remember Fridays we knocked off at at noon. And we all went out to the parking lot, and the commander and first sergeant would, you know, they'd, they'd buy a keg. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that if the Keesler commander did that and he didn't have, you know, the airmen against drunk driving and Ubers lined up, he'd probably be court-martialed. <laughs> that was just the way it was. And I lived in the, in the barracks uh, as a young airman. And I distinctly remember on Fridays when they didn't float the kegs at the party, the commander and first sergeant are dragging him into the day room and saying, all right, Jeff, make sure that this tap gets and this keg, when it's floated, gets back to the class six store because it's in my name. Just, to, just give, you know, this is a first yeah, sergeant yeah. talking. And I don't want to see any of you guys in my office Monday morning. I, I mean, if they did that, even before I left, I know our, our dorms were all dry. Yeah. Couldn't. It didn't matter how old you were, how long you'd been didn't in. It stopped me. <laughs> it didn't stop anybody else. But I, I remember as as an NCO, as a tech sergeant, I would have to go do dorm daddy detail yeah. every weekend. You know, mm-hmm. you basically go sit in the dorm and make sure people weren't drinking in the barracks, you know, in the day room. I'm like, well, hell, you know, 15 years ago, our commander and first sergeant were encouraging, they were funding that behavior. <laughs> and, and then and then they went, but... But it's it's in context. There's a reason why it changed. There was a reason why our our barracks went dry. This is when I was stationed at Elmendorf. But you know there was a there was a distinct event that happened, um, that made the commander say we can't do this anymore. Now the club was across the street. You could go out there and get tore up all you wanted and come back to the dorm, right? And you could be as drunk as you wanted. You just couldn't have. You weren't supposed to have booze in the dorm. Travis, Travis Air Force Base, California, they had mm-hmm. a bar in the middle of the dorm complex. Nice. So you didn't have to leave the dorm complex, which was great. Uh, but there was one commander's call. It was an airman all call, and so we went. And at the end, of course, there's, there's a Q&A, and a, a guy stands up. He says, uh, sir, I'm 25. I ran a business before I was in. Obviously not well, because he, <laughs> but, but this exactly. was his case he was making, right? right. And, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm 25. I've, I've been deployed twice in, you know, in my three years of service. Why can't I have a beer in my room? You know, fair case, right? And the commander sir, uh, says, hey, can we bring up that slide? And it wasn't included in the primary slide deck, but he brings it up and it shows sexual assaults in the dorm complex the previous year, of the last year of having wet dorms, right, where you could drink alcohol there, there were 11 sexual assaults. In the eight years that followed, 1.5. I don't know what the 0.5 was, but if that was accurate, what he said next was the exact question to ask. And he said, what would you do? Because it was self-evident. Right. 
you know? <laughs> and and, and a, at Elmendorf, it was a very similar yeah. situation um, that came down. And, and I'm sure it's all across the Air Force. But yeah. it just, you know, we were talking earlier about taking things into context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my experience in the military is different than your experience. Sure. You know, those um, time frames of of everything when you got promoted when you moved all of that's completely different even in the short time frame between um our periods of service yeah you you said earlier i think you were a fast burner which now probably means something completely different yeah i was six at seven years okay yeah so i was promoted um all others which i'm sure you were as well Mm -hmm. i made staff sergeant at six years Mm. And was all others. So, and I'm guess they're still doing it where they basically promote you based on your previous date of, your previous date of rank. Data so, rank. whoever had been in E4 the longest got promoted first. Right, right. And so, as in all others, that's the last group because the Air Force, at least at that time, mm-hmm. did promotions for a whole year. Right. They announced it in June. They started promoting in July. And then the last batch got promoted the next June. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the all others. Those were the fast burners. Well, I made staff in tech. I was all others for both. There you go. And I made staff at seven, six, six put on at seven. And then I made tech at, I guess, nine and sewed on at 10. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was, I was cruising. Yeah, yeah. But completely different than your timeline. Yeah, for you sure. Know? And we couldn't compare. I mean, I distinctly remember a lot of, E4s that couldn't make E5 before 10 years because they had knocked the higher tenure back from 12 years to 10 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys, I mean, they, they just couldn't make it. I mean, it was, it was, it was hard. Now I always made nineties on PFE SKT. Yeah. I was a, I was a great or, test, t- test taker. Whatever as well. they, I don't think they call it SKT anymore. But yeah. They call it SKT. Now, and the PFE changed. One right, of them right, changed. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I went from PFE to PDG. Yeah. Exactly. That was that was after my years, but yeah. you know, I always always did wonderful on those. Mm-hmm. Um, just didn't have time and grade, time and service, which at that time is what it took. Um, yeah, yeah. They're getting away from testing now. I think now uh, for the uh, for E seven through E nine, there's not any more testing, and they're trying to phase out. There were talks of phasing out testing for E six and E five, but we'll see. We'll see. It'd be interesting. Glad I got my two fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> me too me too yeah it's been great so so you're in the air force what'd you do yeah. in the air force uh, okay so i was a ground radio communications technician okay i repaired um a lot uh, a lot of different stuff we were um primarily responsible for air traffic control radios mm-hmm. um so a lot of the stuff that you probably use as a controller mm-hmm. i was the guy that you called when it broke um, right about the time I got out, they actually split my career field into what is now, I think, called airfield systems technician and um, RF transmission yes, specialist. Yeah. So, yeah, it went from uh, from that split that created ATCOS, which is air traffic control landing systems. Yeah, LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, and and now it's RAWS, and I forget what RAWS stands for. R A W S. Don't know. You got me. Yeah. (laughs) But at that time, the ground radio career field um, maintained our our bread and butter, if you will, was air traffic control system from the tower to the antenna, well, not to the antenna, to the back of the radio. Mm -hmm. 
And then there was a cable antenna, a small career field that took care of the antenna. Mm-hmm. But I've climbed a few towers in my day. So, <laughs> you know, I came here to Keesler, and that's kind of how I, I ended up on the coast, really. I came here to Keesler. Our school was about a year long. Um, did that, left out of Keesler, never worked air traffic control for years, you know, or at Cal's radio for years after that. I mm. went and did some of these oddball things. My first assignment was to Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, long since closed, but I worked for um, what was then Electronic Securities Command. Uh, I can't even tell you what, it's NSA, Mm -hmm. but I can't tell you what they've merged into now. They always hide themselves. They change about every three years, their MAGCOM name. Um, I went there and I worked on mobile tactical intelligence gathering equipment. We had these four vans that basically you backed it up to this big tent Mm -hmm. and people got in there and did Intel stuff. Now I'm not an Intel guy. Those are a completely separate breed Mm -hmm. of people. Um, but I worked that did a year there. And then I went to Marone, Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, I was permanent party there for a year and a half. Um, most folks that have flown into Africa or middle East have at least heard of it. Mm -hmm. Most people stopped by. That was an awesome assignment because we had 43 Americans there or 43 GIs. Yeah, it's a small base. base. It's a very small base. Very small, and it was kind of sleepy town. We didn't do a whole lot then. We did a couple of of NATO (laughs) exercises, but they've gotten a lot bigger since since then. They brought in a few more detachments and Mm -hmm. stuff. But, you know, we had 10 comm guys, and that was, I think there were three or four of us radio guys, um, a couple of MetNav guys that maintained the the TACAN and the... the, uh, VORs and whatnot, ILS. Uh, No, we didn't have an ILS. No? Okay. No. Uh, that would have been too fancy for us. <laughs> but um, so I left out of there and did a year and a half in Spain. That was probably the best um, Air Force assignment because I got to see so much stuff that I never would. I mean, in my life, I never probably would have run across a fuels guy. Well, you know, one of my best friends over there was the fuels guy. And yeah. he, you know, he, you know, service, there was, we were so small. You got to really know what everybody else did and kind of from a micro level, how the air force operated. Cause you yeah. saw all those people like where, if I'm in a big base like Keesler, I may not know how the aircraft get fueled, but because my buddy on the softball team is the only fuels guy on base. I'd call him up and be like, Hey man, are you, are you fueling those planes? Yeah, come on out. You know, and that's cool. Just stuff that that I never would have. Nowhere else in the Air Force would I ever get to drive a follow me truck. Mm, yeah, I, I don't know if they still use those or not. They do, they, they do. But you and, know, it's a it's it's a truck that they use to lead aircraft around. That's right. You know, I that's never, right. I never would have got to do. I never would have, you know, got to operate a K loader. I mean, mm-hmm. I, so that little base was was awesome. So I did a, a year and a half there, and I came back and had a follow on assignment. Uh, to Langley, Virginia, which is as close as I ever was to home. Absolutely hated it. Um, didn't like the area. It was, it was, oh, my God, expensive. The base was, um, it was bad. I'll just say that, I'm not going to say it sucked, but when you left the base, you could always feel the wind blowing in your face. So it was horrible. And it was, you know, it was a headquarters base. And, yeah, that's and, right. I mean, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a general. Mm-hmm. It was, I think we had... I think we had 12 or 13 general officers on that base, either from Air Combat Command headquarters or the wing mm-hmm. or from some of the other area um, functions. You know, the Navy had a big uh, Atlantic command there, so a lot of those generals were on our base. And 
The CIA is at Langley as well, right? No, it's at Langley, Virginia, which is okay. up by D.C. Gotcha. Langley Air Force Base is in the Tidewater area. It's just north of Norfolk, Virginia, and okay. Hampton, Virginia is where that's at. Don't so, they have the interceptor mission there too? That can't. I think they do now. That okay. came after my time. It was all 15s I when see, I was I there. See. So, yeah, we had, I think, three squadrons of 15s there. And I worked uh, for the first part of that assignment. I worked at Cal's. You know, maintaining mm-hmm. at that time, it was the OJ314. I don't know if you were ever lucky enough to see one of those in your air traffic control. No, what is that? Line. It it was the predecessor to the ETVS. Okay, gotcha. Um, was that the switchboard kind of thing where you, where you push the buttons? <laughs> it, it was yeah. actual like mechanical buttons, buttons yeah. all, all through that. Um, and that's what we had. I, I was at um, Keesler whenever in the, in the schoolhouse whenever they brought in ETVS, which was... The enhanced, enhanced terminal. terminal voice switch. There you go. Yeah. So, and and it's something a little more modern. It's all touchscreen. Yeah. Driven, computer driven. This was not. This was, hey Jeff, go up to the tower and desolder these light bulbs on this little strip so that they can tell which radio channel they have selected. Mm. Um, it was a good system. I mean, it worked for a long time, but yeah. it was very intense. I mean, it had a whole room full of equipment, whereas the ETVS is now. Pretty much like two or three racks, yeah. Plus your 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 monitor, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure Keesler's tower is still laid out this way. But you've got a huge kind of countertop area that's slanted towards you. That used to all be taken up by the 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 OJ314 console. Interesting. Wow. So, and that was that was the Air Force standard for for most of my time in. So I think now they have to figure out. Do we really need these bigger towers? I mean, because this table right here would have probably been the size of one operator console. Wow. So it had radio channels, telephone channels, intercom channels, monitor channels. You had all these, you know, it had an old DTMF push-button phone mm-hmm. that you would dial. Yeah. So if you wanted to make a phone call, you select up a telephone line and you could dial it, and then you could either put it in your ear, you could put it over a speaker, it, for what it was, it was pretty interesting. But you probably, but the training was probably a little more intense on that for, it, it from, was, from the operator it was pretty, perspective. It was pretty intense. I, you know, I think from from the air traffic controller side of it, you know, selecting the channels was was probably about the same. Probably a little easier because you could just look down at this big, huge panel of buttons, mm-hmm. and um, all of these buttons set in a we called them buckets. Um, which sat kind of underneath the countertop, and mm-hmm. they would pop down in there, and they would have screw terminals, and uh, and one would go bad, and of course we would come up there, and first thing we do is, you know, I can't hear, you know, I can't hear one twenty one five. Well, you know, that was kind of important, so yeah. we we start hot swapping cards, and 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 <laughs> we get it get it back in, and then we take it back to the shop, and we actually did component level repair on that. Yeah, yeah, they don't, yeah, most yeah. most career fields, and I say most because there might be some, but I'm I venture to say nobody does component level maintenance. Not not like we did at that time, and we we had different test mockups for for different um, systems that you could put it in, and it would it would shoot a, a, a test signal to this pin or that pin, or sometimes right. you know you're breaking out signal generators and whatever, and and doing all that. But uh, so we would always come up and do that. Well, one time I get a card. This was at, in Marone, very small base. Mm-hmm. It's a Saturday night, and we had two controllers. They only worked. It was a shared tower. So the Spanish maintained the tower itself. 
we only dealt with the American controllers when they used separate radio. There were certain radio systems that were only used for American controllers. The rest of it was all shared with the Spanish. So we had Spanish counterparts that maintained their radio systems that they used. Exact, identical radios, exact same stuff. Mm-hmm. We had to maintain the, the OJ314, the tower console. Well, at that time, of course, the Air Force was no smoking. You couldn't smoke. The Spanish did not have that rule. Right. So a lot of times we actually had to create a, a, a preventative maintenance inspection to go up there and vacuum the cigarette ashes out of those buttons. Because if you can imagine a controller sitting there with a cigarette and they're pushing buttons on, on this console, That's wild. all those ashes fall down in there. And we would pull those cards out of that bucket and vacuum out all the cigarette ashes. Wow. So not a problem with the ETDS. Yeah, yeah. So, that's true. That's true. But anyway, I was saying that to say, midnight, I get a phone. I'm at the club. I'm having fun. You know, this is <laughs> as much fun as you can have at a base with 43 people. Yeah. Um, that meant I was drinking a lot is what that meant. So I get a phone call from this guy, and he's like, he's like, hey, man, I, I don't know what's going on, but there's bells ringing downstairs, which is where all the central equipment was. I, I don't know what's happened, and all of my radios are out. And I got an aircraft that's on, you know, they're, they're on their yeah. way. Yeah. So I said, okay, you know, the base was about as big as this neighborhood. So, yeah. you know, I hop on, hop on my bike and, and ride over to the tower and I go up there and I immediately realize it's a blown fuse. So I turn it, power everything down, swap the fuse, get him back in service. I said, hey, you know, check it out. He's like, okay. So later he, he tells me, he's like, hey, man, I got to be honest with you. I'm the one that blew that fuse. I was like, how did, how did you blow a fuse? I mean, what did you spill a Coke in the, in the, yeah. in the bucket or what'd you do? He said, no, I couldn't get my phone to work. He said, and I've seen you come up here so many times and swap these cards around that I swapped these cards around. And what he did is he pulled a radio card and put it in a tele, cause they looked the same. They were the same color, but different voltage, probably different voltage, different, different output, everything. Yeah. And, yeah. And he basically shut down the whole air traffic control tower because he, he didn't want to call me the first time to That's say, awesome. hey, how come my phone doesn't work? You know, it's, it's so funny. Technicians, uh, so I started out on C5s. That was in 19, the, the first one was made in 1963. And then mm-hmm. they, they, they pushed somehow again in the 80s. But a technician solved problems on that plane very differently than, say, when I got to the C17, which was built in like the 2000s. And one of the problems I would have is like we would be on approach and the gear wouldn't come down or the gear might be out of sequence. And so I would have to go back to this 1960s era, you know, control box that had these cards and I would pull the cards out and I would, I would clean the contacts with any racer, mm-hmm. you know, and then slip them back in. They'd cycle the gear, everything, you know, it works, <laughs> works fine. We did that with generators, all sorts of things. <laughs> I lost, um, I lost all power on the plane on, on one flight. And so the, the generator control units, uh, they're these relays. That's all they are. They're huge relays that take the engine power, make sure it's safe for the plane and then connect it through, through the electromagnetic relay to the plane. Right. And so my first step was there. Now we lost all of them. So the plane got impounded when, when we landed and I, I just beat the hell out of them with a hammer because I, I just need the switch to throw. You right. know what I mean? Like, there's no reason that all four engines, you know, would, would go out and, and all of a sudden they had bad power. They're four independent generators, you know? So I just started beating the hell out of relay like I was, you know, 
a Russian trying to escape from an asteroid with Bruce Willis. <laughs> right. Percussive maintenance. Yeah, percussive maintenance. I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's it's funny how how different. You know, I guess it's pretty common sense, but technicians evolve. You know, with the with the with the technology. And if you wanted to be successful on a C five, you had to be good with the multimeter. Mm-hmm. But on a C seventeen, you didn't. Yeah, probably nowhere to put a multimeter. No, no. I you you had line line. Line replaceable units and monitors that would tell you they would shoot resistance for you down a wire. Yeah, they would give you resistance values back, and so based on that information, like you didn't actually have to carry a multimeter. I never felt safe doing that. If I'm going to be on a plane circumnavigating the world, you know, I'm going to have a multimeter. Exactly, it's pretty. It's a pretty damn capable machine. So, well, I used to tell, and and again, I, I got out of the military in uh, 2007, so. I had really seen the Air Force through that change. You know, I came in with with at least a few vacuum tube pieces of equipment. Mm-hmm. And I saw that through to like the ATVS where it's it's all it's all digital. The radios were going the same way. Mm-hmm. The radios that I used to pull out of a rack and, and you know, had tuned tank capacitor circuits that mm-hmm. I would that's how you would align the radio to to the frequency that you want, all the single channel stuff, um, the GRR 23s and 24s. That's kind of what I cut my teeth on in that. And then they, they've completely switched now to these basically sealed boxes that, you know, with a, with a do not open void warranty sticker over it. And, and that's, that was kind of the change. And much like going from a C5 to a C17, you know, you don't break those panels. You don't take those panels off. That's not a. That's not a panel you can take off. We have to fly it back to Dobbins or wherever to take that panel off. And it's, it's an interesting thing to see. That doesn't mean that the, that the technicians that they have now on the C-17s are less capable than you. They're just different capable. I used to tell my guys yeah. all the time because they'd be like, "Hey, uh, Sergeant Collins." What are we gonna What are we gonna do when we get out? How are we gonna do? I mean, I, I have all this great skill. You know, I can line the the automatic gain control on these receivers, and nobody knows how to do that. I said, "Look, guys, you're blacksmiths. You have a phenomenal talent that nobody has a use for." And when I was a kid growing up, the the best off guy in town. Guy who made the most money, he ran a TV and repair or radio repair <laughs> business down on the corner. Because you know, when you paid, you know, fifteen hundred dollars, which is probably equivalent to five grand now, for a small TV, you'd take that sucker in to get it That's fixed. Right. Yeah, and he could fix it. When you know now, you can get a TV the size of your garage door for about two hundred bucks at Walmart. <laughs> You're not going to pay somebody any kind of money to to repair that. No, You're going to be like, not. oh, TV's broke, chuck it out or. You know, call somebody like me. Hey, you used to work on electronics. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and, and there's just those modern electronics, especially consumer electronics, aren't made to be repaired. Mm-hmm. They're made to be set on a wall and throw them out when they're done. So I told my guys, look, you need to find something else. You're blacksmiths. You have a wonderful skill set that there is absolutely no application for in today's world. And a good friend of mine that I grew up with, he, he was a cell phone RF engineer. RF technician or something. Okay. He, he maintained cell phone sites up in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina area. I was up there. I was on leave. I stopped in to see him. I was like, hey, man, what are you doing? He worked from home. He had a, had a little truck, and they'd call him and say, hey, this site's out. All he had to do is he'd go you know, check his sites every so often, and then they just called him for 
outages. Mm-hmm. So I was at his house one day and he gets a phone call and he's like, Hey man, I got to go downtown. It's not a tower. It's on a, a rooftop. You know, go with it. I said, yeah, man, let's go. So, you know, I'm kind of picking his brain, driving yeah. down through there. And, and they were all, you know, LRU stuff um, at that time. So we go in, he opens the cabinet, you know, we get up to the rooftop. He's got to go, I think it was a hotel, but he has to go see somebody to get a key to get up sure. on the roof. And we get up there, which was kind of neat, but he opens the, the, the cell site, if mm-hmm. you will. It's probably five foot wide and five foot tall, opens it up, kind of looks down a list of uh, a line of LEDs and goes up. The A6 card is bad. Pulls the A6 card out, goes down to his truck, pulls an A6 card out of his bin, puts the A6 card back in, power cycles it. Everything's green. <laughs> he calls in to the, to the knock and says, hey, you know, cell site 14 is back up. They go, yep, verified, thanks. He goes back, puts that card in a shipping box in his office, ships it off to Nortel or whoever it was, and and that was it. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, how often are you checking the output power or aligning output power on all your radios or, you know, checking? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I open the cabinet and I look for the red light and I pull that card out and put another one in, hit the power cycle button, and, and that's it. And, and that's that's what electronics repair has become. Now, you know, there's some niche stuff out there. But, yeah. You know, buying, now, all of the guys that worked for me are perfectly capable of doing that job. Yeah. They can open a cabinet and go, uh, red light, pull it out, ship it back. Um, so I think a few of them have done that, but a lot of them have moved into the, into the networking end of things. Mm. Well, yeah. you seem to still, still use that skill set. I, I I do a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I do a little bit. I mean, it, it's it's a little rusty. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you, but yeah, I like to I like to tinker around um, with stuff. I after we we bought our farm, um, got it cleared off. Like I said earlier, I, I used a hoe and a and an axe, and a couple of weeks later, I said, "To heck with this! I'm getting a bulldozer in here." Hired a guy with a bulldozer. He came in and cut me a little keyhole in the property where we built our house. Now, I tried to convince my wife to let me build a shop that we could put a temporary house in while we were building our house. Go on. (laughs) Because I want to know if if, if this worked out because I'm going to pitch it from this perspective. So It it most certainly did work out. And my wife said, um, absolutely not. Uh, We will rent a place. If I move into a metal building with temporary walls, we'll be there 20 years from now. <laughs> and uh, having the wisdom that I have from spending a lot of years with my wife, I said, yes, dear. And we built a house first. And then a couple years later, okay. I built my shop. So <laughs> within that, it's a 42 by 40, just metal pole barn. Nothing fancy, but I, I work on all kinds of stuff. I... um one of the things that, that I, I do like to tinker with is electronics because a lot of that stuff that I used 20-some years ago, it's, it's kind of a use it or lose it. So you have to play around with it every now and then, otherwise it, it's, it's gone forever, yeah. um, which I still have to go back and relearn a lot of that stuff. But I, I don't really, you know, I look around and I see, like, you do a lot of wood, pure mm-hmm. woodworking Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do so much pure woodworking as I do tying stuff together, um, tying electronics and woodworking or pneumatics and woodworking 
that's, together. That's what I want to get more into, you know. Yeah, um, probably one of the most useful tools that I have built for my shop is a pocket hole jig that uses a small pneumatic I cylinder and a foot switch. I love that. To clamp the wood. I, I, I probably got the idea from watching somebody on YouTube mm-hmm. um, and then just kind of took it and ran with it. And that's one of, anytime I make a pocket hole, I'm not getting out the, I mean, I, I, and this is not a plug for any pocket, but Craig makes a, they make a whole system that's got yeah. the, the, the vice grips that clamp it on there. Mm-hmm. Total pain in the backside to do that. It's I mean, super annoying. It's good for one or two, but if you need to make 20, if you need to drill 20 holes, you're going to be there all day and you're going to be mad. So I made this, this, this little contraption, I guess you will, it uses a pneumatic cylinder. I was like, I don't know if this pneumatic cylinder is going to be big enough. It only had like a 20 millimeter throw, which is seven eighths of an inch, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I don't know if it'd be strong enough. Well, the first piece of three quarter inch plywood that I put it on, it buckled because I had too too much pressure going to it, and then I had to get into the physics of pneumatics. And basically, I was tripling the tank pressure on my shop air system, so had to get a regulator to turn that down a little Interesting. bit. Interesting, but stuff like that. Um, I automated a a chicken coop. My nephew came came down from West Virginia, and we built a chicken coop. And uh, I got tired of going out there every night and shutting the door keep the the raccoons and the possums from eating all my chickens yeah so i, I use uh a, a, a bunch of stuff that i had in my shop laying around you know all that stuff that your wife's like i don't know why you keep that box of junk you're never going to use oh, yeah. it so yeah. this is one of those where i went in and said ha <laughs> all, all, all of those automotive relays that i've taken out of every junk car that i walk past that's what i use to make this system and it's it's an arduino which is a, a small microprocessor yeah that's uh, something I really want to get into. Super cool, super easy, and there's lots of information out there about it. Um, I'm certainly not an Arduino expert, but I can I can look at different people's coding and say, okay, I need a little bit of that, and I'll throw that in here, and then I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll throw that in there. I understand the electronic side of it, the digital side of it. It's kind of like, eh, what? kind of magic is happening in this thing anyway. Yeah. But, but with Arduino, it, it is pretty easy. And if you've had any computer programming experience mm-hmm. in your life and you, you, you can follow that kind of logic, super easy and super capable. Um, I've done all sorts of little projects with that. But with this chicken coop, I took an old Craftsman drill, um, cordless drill that I had. And I took a lawnmower battery, 12-volt lawnmower battery, a couple of these relays, and an Arduino used a, um, a voltage-sensitive resistor, okay. uh, a light, I'm sorry, a light-sensitive resistor, and um, used that as a, basically a trigger to tell the door to, because chickens come in when it gets dark and they go out when it gets light. That's what they do. If you don't lock them up at night, your raccoons will eat them all. I've experienced that numerous times let me so let me ask some clarification here because we we might be having people that listen that that don't understand what we're doing i don't want to stop it i just want to explain it you know i want to have the shop talk you know so um by a a light sensitive we're talking about a photosensitive um switch essentially right correct okay so so like your your dawn to dust switches that are on like say lights that are outside your home correct gotcha gotcha and and what that would what I can do with that, and this is an analog 
things. So you can say, okay, when the light level gets to this point, mm-hmm. shut the door. Right. So to shut the door, I turned the drill on, had the drill hooked up to a, basically a lead screw, which was a piece of all thread chucked into the drill. Yeah. Screwed a little door up and down. Now they sell those. I didn't invent anything that's not already readily available. Sure. But I did it with parts that I had in a, in a $3 microprocessor and a spare lawnmower battery that I had. So that kind of stuff is, is what I like to do. I took an old freezer and I converted it into an egg incubator. Can incubate more eggs than I ever need. 300 and some eggs. It's all driven by one of these little, you can really get them for under a buck now if you, if you shop around, the Arduino. Mm-hmm. And it's just got inputs. If the temperature drops below this level, turn this heater on. Yeah. When it gets to this level, turn the heater off. It sounds like Excel logic. If this, then that. You know, it's exact. If okay. you can follow Excel logic and you can do, you know, nest- run a macro, you can probably do that. Yeah. Nested if statements. Yeah. If you know anything with Visual Basic or any of that, no problem coding in in Arduino. I've written probably ten macros in my life. Half of them successful, but uh. well, <laughs> anybody who can sit down and just pound out code that's successful right out of the chute, mm-hmm. they they're probably making a mint as a computer programmer. They're not sitting around the wood shop going, hmm, "I wonder how I can turn that light on." <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I I used an old drill that I had. I don't. I, it was in the corner because you couldn't get batteries for it anymore. It was one of those things. It was a 12-volt drill. I had a 12-volt battery. I said, hey, perfect motor. Now, there are better motor applications out there than a, than a 25-year-old cordless drill, but yeah, it worked. That's still, right. still works. Uh, I'm not using that coupe currently, so I have the battery and all disconnected. It all still works. Drives a bunch of relays, like you were talking about earlier with the, <clears throat> with the relays. Just stuff. I built... Um, uh, the incubator, I took an old upright freezer, took everything out of it, nothing more than an insulated box, which is what an incubator is, mm-hmm. with a small heater, you know, ordered a small heater um, element off of Amazon, I think it was for an old coffee pot or something, with a fan, heats it up, keeps it about 100 degrees, turns some trays every, uh, every I think every two hours I have it rotating trays, really? 90 degrees, so that, yeah, the, Incubators, you have to move the eggs, otherwise the embryo will stick to one side of the egg. So in nature, and in my chicken yard, <laughs> the mother will roll the eggs. And I However know that. often they do it. Yeah, you can't just leave them set in one spot because that rotation is what drives the, the chicken to develop it. It's bad if your turner goes out. So wired up a turner, again, it's an if-then statement. If 60 minutes have passed turn on the motor, and I, I, I repurposed a mo, uh, stepper or a um, linear actuator out mm-hmm. of a treadmill. Linear actuator mean, meaning that it's, it extends in one direction. Correct. Yeah. It's a motor that mm-hmm. spins that turns that rotational motion into linear motion. Mm-hmm. It basically drives a screw, and then that screw moves in and out, which will push or pull a load. Do, from, you, do you watch... Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you, no. do you watch uh, Jeremy Field, Fielder? Uh, Fielder? Absolutely. God, I love his videos. Well, I love having an understanding of electronics like and, and these sort of weird niche niche hobbies <clears throat> makes YouTube even more interesting. Like I've, I feel like I'm peeling back a layer, you know, and, and observing things that 
people don't like. I can follow his videos mostly. Some of them he gets really, really technical, but I learn a lot from him, you know. Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure if he I don't know his background. I've watched I think he's all an electrical engineer. He's gotta be an electrical engineer. Well that's what I say, but then other times I mean I know he's he talked about being a draftsman with which is where he learned the SolidWorks mm. um, CAD stuff. So I, I almost don't know if he's just not some sort of savant that just <laughs> He could it. be. And, yeah, he, and he may be. He made like a row machine that powered his kids' Wii. And so, <laughs> and so his kids had to be on the rower oh, in yeah, order yeah, for them yeah. to I be saw, able to use I the saw. Wii. I'm like, that's brilliant, of course. But, like but to me, that's, that's you know, um, electromechanical uh, energy development. You yeah. know, to, to me, that's, that's what... A generator is. I, he's he's got to be an electrical engineer. I, 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 he, you may be. He certainly yeah. has the knowledge to be. Yeah. I don't know if he has the credentials to be. To see but. him, and and he's such a skinny dude hauling around these huge three phase motors right. and making them do amazing things. It's it's so cool. So yeah, Jeremy. So if you go to if you go to my YouTube channel, it's just like that. No, I'm just kidding. It's nothing like that. Please don't go to my YouTube channel expecting to see anything remotely close. To do you want to tell what, everybody what, what it is? Do. Um, let me see if I get this right, because it's, it's mud flap, two Ds, two Ps. <laughs> and, and there, of course, is a story behind that. That okay. comes from a, um, a luscious mullet that I had in high school. And uh, that kind of became... They're back my, in style. Well, I am a trendsetter. <laughs> so um, when I was in high school, I had, a, I had a, a wicked mullet about halfway down my back. Oh, and, that's uh, awesome. Somebody, I think he's now the town barber in my hometown, um, said, you look like you have a mud flap. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> so, I mean, through high school, I mean, there's still people that I grew up with, you know, through my teen years that don't know me as Jeff. They know me as mud flap. So I, just kind of a play on words. I, I picked that up as an email address early in the email days, mm -hmm. you know, in the AOL days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just kind of stuck with it. You know, even now, you know, our little farm, we call it the Mudflap Ranch. So if you search for Mudflap 2Ds and 2Ps on YouTube, you will find, I think I've got, I don't know, 15, 10 or 15 videos up there. You don't you, expect much. You've got <laughs> the chicken coop. You chicken. even walk through, well, I, I, um, I rewatched a couple of them today because when, when David first told me about you and we first started like an email, you know, correspondence back and forth, I went and checked out your videos. So had to, had had to rewatch them because it's been a while for us to, you know, be able to get and get and sit down. But you've got that one. You've got, uh, I watched the one about spraying finishes. That was actually right. really informative. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you, if you do this as well. I personally love Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight, right. I think has made trades accessible for a lot of people and, and, and they deserve that, that credibility in my opinion. But mm -hmm. I've looked at that spray gun. Like every time I get a magazine, I think, man, Maybe I should just splurge the $9.99 and then go pick this thing up because I exactly. want to spray finishes, but I worry if it's a worthwhile product. I've heard nothing but good things, but right. then I research it because you'd think that if I'm going to go spend – tools at Harbor Freight are arguably disposable by their price. Oh, absolutely. You know, so when, when I go to buy something <clears> – <throat> I know in my mind what I'm getting, but I still want to look up and see if it's worth it. But I should just know, like, what's the point of that? Anyway, I, I looked it up, and, and it seemed I was worried about the air pressure, whether or not I, I, I had the air pressure. I've got a, I've got a compressor in the ceiling, mm -hmm. uh, so, which I haven't run drop lines to yet. I've got a 26-gallon 
compressor. And I think that'll run it fine. Absolutely. But also I'm worried about moisture in the lines. Do you have a dryer in line for years? I do not. I okay. probably should have because, of course, being in South Mississippi, all air has, I mean, you can pretty much wring it out. Yeah, yeah. I, with that said, I haven't had a lot of problems okay. with, with spraying. I'm not spraying, you know, classic automobile finishes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure you can see some fish eye and some water spots somewhere in mine, but I, I don't have a... I don't really have a huge issue with it. Mm-hmm. Now, if the line has been setting for a long, you know, I will I will blow it out and, yeah. and keep the keep the drain out. But I don't have the the fancy dryers and coolers. You know, you talked about the the purple Harbor Freight spray gun, and again, this is not a plug for Harbor Freight. <laughs> this is but, turning into a tool review. <laughs> but it is. I mean, it is what it is. Yes, yeah. it's, it's a it's a ten dollar spray gun. Is it comparable to one of these five hundred dollar? No. That they're using down yeah. at the auto finishing shop? No, absolutely not. But you know what? I will use that for a project. And the only cleaning that it gets is whatever material I'm spraying through it, I will empty it out. And then I will put whatever thinner or solvent mm-hmm. is good for that. So if I'm spraying lacquer, I'll put a little lacquer thinner in there and I'll spray it out till it's gone. And then I set it over there. And when it clogs up, I throw it away. <laughs> Because you can catch them for seven ninety nine, which I normally buy four or five of them whenever they're seven ninety nine. Oh, okay. I don't worry about tearing. I used to tear them apart and get in there with a toothbrush, and I don't do that anymore. Uh, yeah, when they clog up or whenever they start acting funny or they get too much paint on them or the the seal malfunctions, I throw it away and I go over to my my shop, you know, cabinet and I get another one because I always keep three or four of them on hand. Right, right. Um, it for what it is, I think it's it's. It's very adequate. Yeah, for sure. Pressure, for sure. I run mine on uh, 22 to 30 PSI. Uh-huh. You know, that's a volume is, the, is really the, the thing that you need. 26-gallon compressor is what I use. It'd be fine. I can run it out of air, but not in the time. I, I mean. How big I, does something have to be for you to run, run the air out of a 26-gallon compressor at 20 to 30 PSI? Uh, you can get a good couple of minutes. I mean, you can get, you can get a coat. On yeah. just about anything that you want. I mean, okay. I built some big cabinets. I didn't have any problems. Um, the cabinets in my shop are, I basically got a four by eight set of cabinets. It's four individual cabinets that are backed up and mm-hmm. side by side to each other. And then I have some MDF on top of that. So those four foot wide by two foot deep cabinets, I spray painted all of those. No problems with with rain, and if it runs out, it's probably time for you to stand up and give your back a break anyway. <laughs> and you just stand up and and let it chart, you know, fill up, yeah, fill up. Two minutes later, and you're and you're spraying. So. I've I've thought about getting another tank and just welding it onto it and increasing the capacity, but I think, in my estimation, you're going to run into a problem with wearing down the engine. Or the, or, or the compressor motor, the, the piston setup, because it's not designed to run that long to fill up another tank. Correct. I think you could get it done, but, yeah, I mean, it would, you're, you're going to yeah, blow and, it out. And I've seen a lot of people do it. You know, they'll find an old tank mm-hmm. that has, um, you know, the motor's shot on it. Yeah. They would just fabric cobble together some, some plumbing to go from one tank to the other, which is really all you need. Yeah. And... You could probably put a valve between those two, let your primary tank fill up. That's a good Once idea. Once it fills up and let everything cool off, turn the valve, let it fill up the other tank. You could have an Arduino-controlled valve. You could. <laughs> I don't know that I would recommend that because that's a. Um, it's not really a process that needs to be automated. <laughs> but but you could. Um, but, 
you know, do you leave your tanks pressurized all the time or do you drain them out? Uh, so the one up there, normally I, I, I drain mine out um, about once a year, you know, okay. just to just to drain the water out. And I've never had a dryer and, I don't, and I've never had an, inli- an inline oiler with it as well. So I just run it straight straight from the tank again i'm doing like i'll use it on a on a ratchet on a on an air gun um a nail gun stuff like that but the but the compressor i have been using is this little pancake uh compressor over here it might be hard to see but that's 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 what i do all of my nailing with so i mean in nailing you don't you don't need much a quick blast yeah especially Um, when you're just doing 16 18 gauge so yeah you don't need much same same setup and is it the blue yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. It's the blue can, back yeah, there. I can see it. I've got the little. Uh, I think it's an Ingersoll Rand. I've got a little Porter cable. Yeah, um, six gallon pancake uh, that I use for the same I same thing. I can't believe I've amassed as many tools as I have. Honestly, I mean it's like because I'm I've been doing I, woodworking for these like, are kind of amateur numbers, pal. I know. I well, I tell you what, I picked up yesterday. I picked up a twelve inch uh, disc sander. Like off it. of off of Facebook Marketplace and ran into a honey pot of tools. This. Uh, this lady, um, tragically, her, her, her husband died uh, last year, and so she's finally getting around now to kind of processing through all the, all the tools and everything. And so she walked up to me, and she told me this story, and it was obviously a sad story. And so I walked in. It was a really great experience because you walked in, and this guy's not in there, but you can see his workflow. You yeah. can see his experience level because he made, he made like, the, the woodsmith drum sander. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah. So, so he made that. And again, you can, you can tell what this guy was, was, was into. He did a lot of scroll saw work. He didn't do very much in the, in the hand tool realm, but he had a lot of old planes, old, old, old wooden planes as well. They're more decoration. I've got, I've got that wooden one right there that I picked up from a fleet market. That's just decoration in my last house. It was in my office. But I've got two planes over there that, are, I've, that I've dated to over 200 years old. So I think they're like mid um, mid nineteenth century, so they were probably used some somewhere in the south during the during the uh, Civil War. So right. both both Stanley planes, but yeah, it's so the problem that I have is you know I built this forty two by forty shop. Now you got to fill it. <laughs> so where you may have to say, I don't have room for three table saws. I'm like pile them in there. So I want I, another table. Saw. I literally have I. You know, I have the uh, Skill or Ryobi tabletop, uh-huh. you know, single arbor, you know, $100 table saw that I used for all sorts of stuff before I said, hey, it's time for me to get a better table saw. Yeah. And much like you said, and I'm familiar with the um, the lady that, that you're talking about. I'm pretty sure I know that story mm-hmm. because a friend of mine called and said, hey, look, this is right up your alley. You need to you need to call this lady because mm-hmm. you know she's trying to liquidate, and I know you'll be fair. Yeah, I said I'll be watching Facebook for her. so that I think that was one of the. Well, I told her up. not to, not to put anything on Facebook because <laughs> I wanted to come in there and and, and right. you know because I, I I only brought enough money for that, but right. I'm gonna bring a little bit more. Go back, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but I told her I'd bring people, you know, because yeah. because I know some woodworkers that would be really interested in that and. Right. And I, I, giving I've, those tools more life. Yeah. Which, and, which she lit and up I, about. I think that, that they had a bunch of antique tools. I want to say like a whole rack of like bitten brace and mm-hmm. some. Yes. Yeah. Because a, a friend of mine saw those and said, hey, look, I know you're into old tools, which I'm not. And 
I'm into tools, but not necessarily like the antique tools. <clears throat> I think they're cool. They're just not my thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he he called me about that, and I said, ah, you know, I'll meet up with her. And I saw some of her stuff on Facebook. None of it was was anything that I needed, which I don't need any of it. But you were talking about kind of walking through his shop, which yeah. is, you know, that's kind of like wearing somebody else's shoes. Yes. You yeah. know, when you walk through there and you're trying to put a value on how much is a sander really worth? What's the, what's the value of it versus how much does this lady need? And, and I'm always one, I'm going to give you, I'll, I'm going to be fair with you. I'm not going to try to beat you up over a price. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if I'm, Standing in your shop, I've already seen a price, and I know that you're wanting a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a $9 Harbor Freight sprayer gun that you're trying to sell me for $15, I'm probably we're probably never going to meet, but if you have a box of 10 of them that you're wanting $25 for, I'm going to come out and see you, and I'm probably going to make you a good deal on yeah. everything else. So I went out, and there was a, a fella selling a, a Hitachi table saw. I didn't so, know they made table saws. They did. Um, they morphed into um it porter cable bought the design I, i'm guessing at that time they were all it was all made by the same place it was all mm-hmm. made in um in taiwan but it, it was an older model and i went and bought that and i gave them they wanted 175 dollars, and that's what i gave them for it I, I, I came in and there was an older lady who uh, i think this was in long it was in long beach or past christian the husband had been a, he was a retired light colonel, and um, he had died to her unexpectedly. I talked with the son, and the son's like, had cancer for years. She just wouldn't, she just mm. didn't process that. So it was unexpected to her, not to anyone else. So I said, well, you know, hey, let me, you know, where's the saw? I'd like to look at it, you know, see if I can get help you out. You know, I ended up leaving with a whole truckload of stuff, mm-hmm. including the saw for $175. So I have that couple, I don't know, last year, two years ago, cruising through Craigslist, see a guy selling a, a couple of tools, and I'm like, hey, those look like pretty good tools. So I call him. He's on Keesler. It was a first lieutenant, um, lived kind of back by the, the O Club there, or mm-hmm. the, not the O Club, where the O Club used to be. Yeah, back yeah. Side, Bay Breeze. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back in that housing area. So I come in. You know, I'm like, he had this, uh, I, I can't even remember what I was, I think it was a plane, uh, it was a planer or a jointer, mm-hmm. one of the two that he, he was looking at. So he had it, and he, he wanted a, a fair price for it. You know, it's a little tabletop Lowe's Porter Cable version. And I look around, and he's got all this stuff piled up. I was like, well, what else are you selling? Yeah. So by the time it was over and done with, I had... I can't, I'm not even be able to remember all of it. I had a table saw. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, Delta, the Delta that they sell at Lowe's, the 699 version. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, 63, 725. I had the, the jointer. I had a little small Harbor Freight drill press. I had a Bosch router, one of the big half inch routers with plunge base. Uh, scroll so I mean I had a whole truckload of stuff I, I give this guy 500 bucks for which I mean if if you went half price on everything I still made out yeah so that's kind of what I do but the bad problem is is you know I buy that table saw in this lot for 500 dollars I'm like I'll take this back home and then I'll sell my table saw mm-hmm. 
I suck at that side of it. I'm great at buying them, <laughs> and I can get a good deal on it. But I suck at buying it, selling them. So, you know, this $175 table saw, I saw one listed the other day in real bad shape for $350, but I'm like, I like that table saw. I don't want to sell that table saw. <laughs> that belonged to that, that old retired colonel, and, and somebody else would be disrespected. So now i got two table saws, which does come in handy. Yeah. But that unlimited shop space that I had at 42 by 40 is getting um, – Limited? Re- relatively <laughs> limited. Um, my, my granddaughter lives with 12 years old, and she is just kind of getting an interest in what Papa does out in the shop. Mm-hmm. So I like to bring her out and, and kind of show her. I have a small CNC machine that I built. Um, I let her design some stuff on uh, easel. Mm-hmm. And we save it to a, to a thumb drive, and we go out to the shop, and she I let her cut, up, cut it out on the – on the CNC, now she's hooked. So, because having one of anything is just not a good idea, I decided I'm going to build another CNC. So that's that's what I'm working on today. I just got some parts in today. I'm going to build a uh, basically a 60 by 60 um, CNC, a 60 inch by 60 inch CNC machine. Um, Jesus, yeah, that's, that's what, what, what my do wife you said. what do you plan to do with that? Probably build it and then just set it over in the corner and let it collect <laughs> dust. But um, Hell, the next time cool I come back to, to talk on a, on, a, on a podcast, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I built one of those. <laughs> so the, the CNC machine I have now, it's called a mostly, it's mostly printed CNC. And it's one of the first versions. They've come out with a, a couple of super cheap. I mean, it's under 300 bucks and, and, and it, it's adequate. It's not great. You're not going to be turned, you know, cutting aluminum with it, but. For, the, for, for what it is, it's it's all Arduino-based, which okay. I love because I'm already familiar with that. Yeah. Um, and it, it works. It's got a palm router mounted on some, um, basically for rails, it uses uh, EM, three-quarter inch EMT conduit. Really? Which means it's not very rigid. You can pretty right, much grab right. the, the router in the middle and, and move it up and down a, a half inch, which uh-huh. is good if you're making a cheap CNC to cut out you know, little signs for your granddaughter. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to make some precision knockdown furniture, not so, not so great. Is it uh, two axis or three axis? Uh, it's three. Well, okay. it's, it's two and a half D okay. I think is what they call it. Yeah. You, you know, it, it'll, you can adjust the Z height. You can adjust the Z height while you're moving the X and the Y. So the X and the Y they can move. You can cut angles and circles and all that, but you can't do like these big, huge Eagle carves that everybody. Now the one that I'm building, I would be able to do that. Okay. Um, it's, so, it's significantly more than the, the 300 bucks that I've got in the mostly printed CNC. How, how different is it building a 60 by 60? Because to the layman, it seems that, well, the electronics probably have to be the exact same. You're going to change the router. You're going to change the structure for sure, because it has to be able to handle more, more weight all around. But also you probably don't want the play in the EMT. So you're going to go with the aluminum correct. extrusion? No, or? steel. Steel. Okay. Yeah. Um, it'll be, um, the main gantry will be four by two okay. steel. Everything else will be three by two steel. Um, wow. steel is, everybody wants to go to the aluminum, aluminum extrusions. Yeah. And there's a reason why most of the hobby CNC's that you can buy from Rockler or from online or from, um, X Carver or Shape Oco, there's a reason that they're built out of aluminum and there's a reason why you can't get one more than about three feet by three feet. That's because they have to ship them to you. 
Well, if you're building it in your shop, you don't have those limitations. So you can make it as big and heavy as you want. And heavier, generally, for machine tools is better. So yeah, it'd be it'd be three or four hundred pounds by the time I'm done, but it'll be rock solid. Yeah, and I won't have to worry about that much flight. And and you can always chase precision. You know, I'm going to get better to where I can do some of that V carving. I, I don't I don't foresee doing tons of it, but just to to know I can is where I want to go. Yeah. The small one that I have now uses um, a NEMA 17 stepper motor, which means that the face of it is 1.7 inches across. The next step up is a NEMA 23, which means it's 2.3 inches across. Um, and those stepper motors are what give it the precision. It's pretty much all of your CNC's, your hobby grades are going to use a stepper motor. And then... This next step up from that is a servo motor, um, which I'm not going that route because I'm too cheap. But the stepper motor basically uses, instead of like like the motors like Jeremy Felding or what's on your table saw, you hit it with power and it spins. It and, goes. And it yeah. goes. A stepper motor, you hit it with one pulse and it moves a certain amount. Um, most of them out there today are 1.8 degrees, which is – 200 pulses per revolution. So you hit it with 200 pulses and it goes around one complete revolution. What that does is that allows you to get very accurate positioning. So I know if I want something to move five inches and I'm using a one inch per revolution rod, Mm -hmm. if I turn that rod five times, then that's what happens. And I know I need to go 200 revolutions. So that's a thousand. So if I send it 5,000 pulses, and again, this is digital, so you can do it super duper fast. Yeah. Send it 5,000 pulses, it moves five inches or 10 inches or whatever it is. Drawback to stepper motors, there's, they're a, an open loop system. So the computer tells it, go five inches that way, and the computer assumes that it went five inches that way. Mm. Not always the case. Yeah. So servos kind of counteract <clears throat> that, and a servo is just a motor with a position sensor on the back of it that tells you now it can go back to the computer and say, yes, I went five inches. Um, most of the time, as long as you're being reasonable with your, with your setup, mm-hmm. it's not a problem to, um, to lose steps or to, to get out of place. But if it gets out of place, it's going to stay out of place because the computer assumes everything it told it to do, it did. Gotcha. Yeah, and and I've I've watched some videos on CNCs because I'm uh, I'm in the market too. I've I've toyed around with with building one, but it's the but it's the sort of central nervous system of it, the brains of it that I'm not very familiar with. And and a lot of people will use an Arduino, mm-hmm. uh, but again, not being familiar with that, that's an I'm learning two different worlds, you know, kind of kind right. of at the same time. So it's 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 kind of intimidating. I've I've looked at the at the Shapeoko though, are you are you going ball screws or belts? Ball screws. Ball screws. Okay, yeah. So it's a real deal then. <laughs> it is. Uh, I actually got the um, linear slides today. Okay. Um, Fifteen hundred millimeter linear slides, which is sixty fifty nine and a quarter inches, give or take. So I got four of those. Um, the ball screws are sixteen hundred millimeters. As a matter of fact, before I came over today, I was kind of beating my head against the wall. You were talking about marrying multiple disciplines together um the electronic side of it i got that and i I see you have it you just don't know that you have it because you've not looked at it but when you look at it you're gonna be like oh that's easy (laughs) and nothing to that um but the 
marrying those two together, you know, today I was, I was trying to find the formula to calculate um, what they call ball screw whip. And what that is, is if you have a, any cylindrical metal object of a certain length and you spin it too fast, it will induce vibrations. So you really run a risk when you get a 1600 millimeter long or a 65 inch long ball screw when you start trying to spin that at 1500 rpms it'll shake itself apart so that's one of the things that that you have to watch out for which is why a lot of your bigger machines use a rack and pinion or Mm. a belt drive or a chain drive or something other than that everything has it everything with cnc at least building the you know the home gamer version is a trade-off you can get faster speeds with belts and chains, or you can get more precision with a ball screw. I decided to go with ball screws. I may regret it because my calculations show I can't get real fast before I start getting that whip. But there are some ways around that. And the fun of building your own machine versus um, you know, going to a Shapeoko or a X-Carve or any of those, they're all great for what they are. Um, all of those, I think, are Arduino-based, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yes, sir. <laughs> um, but you get to fix those problems, you know, when you're like, well, crap, I put, you know, I need a bigger ball screw or I need a shorter ball screw, and, and you look, and then you see what other people have done with that, and you're like, hey, I can, I can make something like that work. So there's some different contraptions that you can use to um, support that ball screw so that you don't have six foot of it whipping around mm-hmm. 1500 RPMs that move out of the way as everything slides back and forth. Um, and that if I have that problem, that's what I'll do. Interesting. <coughs> yeah. It's, I, I've done a little bit of tool, tool building in my last shop. I had like, I build all, I mean, these, this is small time, but like all my blast gates are, are all, all, all fabricated and and what I'd like to do is I'd like to one of the one of the projects I'd love to do with an Arduino is going to an aluminum blast gate but then automating the opening and closing using a um, load sensing uh, sw- uh, switch right and so when the machine turns on senses the load it'll open that one and then also close all the others you know within that with with the exception of of maybe this one, I might keep that one manual because a buddy of mine built a blade guard for me. I found a plan for it, and he's got a, uh, uh, I think, an X-Carve. And mm-hmm. so he CNC milled it out, and so I'm going to be able to attach that to uh, an addition I'm going to put on my table fence. So I'll get the top of the table saw, because that's the, that's the hardest thing to control is the top of the table saw, you know, dust. I'm, I'm pretty good about dust control throughout the shop, but that the top of that thing is just, I mean, all these little cuts that I had to make here in this in this barrel or in this um bucket here like it it just makes so much dust to sit there and trim off of like half a blade's width of of uh of uh wood off the side of something but yeah so my um dust collection i'm not sure what that's a harbor freight setup with yeah yeah i've got the same um harbor i don't have the cyclone uh, the cyclone i have well it's it's cyclone but i use a barrel Mm -hmm. that it was twenty bucks. I gave Brian, if I'm nothing, I'm cheap. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it, I'm I'm with you. It's it's basically you cut two holes in the top of a, a 55 gallon drum like yep. you have there, and it has two 90s that go on and fit the the um, 
the hose for, yeah. your, for the, you know, the four inch hose. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a cyclone effect. Yes. It's not perfect. It gets about three quarters full and then it sucks into the bag and I'm like, Oh, time to go dump that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things people have built with an Arduino is a, um, well, they've done, they've, they've done the water level as well mm-hmm. so they can tell the pressure inside there and then they know how, right. how, how, how full it is. And then, um, just, just a simple, you know, kind of switch in there, uh, to light something up. But that's, but back to the Arduino, like that's, it's like, it's got an endless set of capabilities an endless set of fixes and ways to automate your life. And I, I just, I, I absolutely love it. You know, I just, I right. haven't and it, done it into it. And it's the best solution for none of those. <laughs> but it's something that, and, and, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, it's the best solution in my book. But mm-hmm. in reality, if that doesn't interest you of being able to sit down in front of a computer and say, I'm going to tell this microprocessor that when this level, when this sensor in this barrel full of sawdust gets to this level, to turn my table saw off. Yeah. Now, to the average sane person, that, that is of no interest to them. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> and if, if that doesn't interest you of learning how to do that, then Arduino is not the solution. Because yeah. you're going to have to put it in there, and you're going to be like, well, crap, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So let me go, oh, here it is. I, you know, I left a semicolon off of this line in my sure. code. So I, I go back in and change that. Now it works. That's what's exciting. And you asked earlier about, well, what are you going to do with a CNC? And probably going to build it and set it, cut a few things with it, set it in the corner. Because to me, CNCing is it's not all that. I mean, it's kind of neat. But to me, I like building the stuff. I like building an egg incubator out of a freezer or a chicken coop opener out of a drill. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of stuff that, that I like to do. No practical purpose necessarily to it other than for me. Matter of fact, I've never even used the egg incubator because I have some tabletop ones that hold about 40 eggs, and it would it would cause marital problems if I loaded up the 300 egg incubator <laughs> and, and hatched all those out. So so I'm I'm wise, and I just do you know 40 at a time, um, and and haven't hatched a whole lot recently. Did hatch out some ducks and turkeys just for the fun of it. Yeah, At nursery. Everybody's like, oh, well, you should you should. Uh, Start making, you know, I'll make stuff for, for people at work. You know, if, if you ask me, hey, Jeff, I was thinking I'd get a, a, a thing over here that says, you know, Shopping Chivalry yeah. podcast. Can you make that? Yeah, I can. <laughs> I don't know how to do it, but I can, I can figure it out. Well, you're, well, you're so, solving, with every problem that you solve with, a, with say, an Arduino or, or, or you creating a tool, even though you're right, like there's probably a better product out mm-hmm. there. But one... You know, you're not paying as much, right. but two, you're solving a problem of, of, of piquing your interest. And now you can do this and you can, and you can pique your interest and, and you can develop along the way. That's, that's one of the things I love in, in, in woodworking. And really it's what I love in, in the sort of engineering aspect of developing the workspace. Right. I love developing the workspace. That's 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 probably my favorite thing to do. I love to build. I love building the miter saw cabinet. I love finding like solutions to my problems, and that's what I get in woodworking. And I think more people would benefit in their daily lives by, as a hobby, practicing solving problems. Right. And, and to me, that's what it is. Because really, the the goal is is to to do the thing that people go. That's that's neat, but you know. The other day, I, I cut a, a lady that works with me. She came up. She says, hey, how much would you charge me to make these? She shows me her phone. She shows me, shows me something on Pinterest. I said, 
way more than what they're charging you. Order it from there. She's like, oh, well, oh, okay, well, if you get a chance, I said, I'll tell you what, my granddaughter's here. We need, I need to show her how to do some stuff. I'll make them for you. But it's not a thing of, hey, you know, I'll pay you 50 bucks if you make me a sign for my wall. I have zero interest in that. Yeah. Um, none, as a matter of fact, I will, t- I turn down, I've, I've never taken a commission job. Wouldn't, Neither have I. Wouldn't yeah. take a commission job because it's not a job to me. Now, if you come to me with some cool project, like, hey, Jeff, can you come help me with automating my, my blast gates? Heck, yeah. I'll do that. <laughs> but if you tell me, hey, Jeff, I'll pay you $1,000 to come automate my blast gates. Not interested. Not interested at all. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at how much time we have to put into these projects, I can't justify that in my own mind Mm -hmm. now i can justify spending 40 hours helping you write the code to automate your 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 dust system because i find that interesting yeah yeah but i would i'm going to charge you a five grand if i have to and then it's going to be work Mm -hmm. and that's boring work yeah so you're trying to escape the work (laughs) aspect of the hobby yeah i'm right there with you certainly yeah when when i was a mechanic i didn't I didn't really tinker with many things, and I noticed that. And, and that's when I got into woodworking because before woodworking, what I tinkered with was mechanical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like I bought and fixed and resold cars, but, but I found interest in that, and it was a way for me to fund the hobby. But, but with woodworking, which started out with Harbor Freight Tools, right. you know, I, was, I was able to kind of develop some experience in this craft. And to your point about learning something, when I have to pay somebody to do something at the house, I typically – Part of the negotiation process, I say, look, uh, I've never done it, so I'd like to learn. I don't want to annoy you or, or anything. But, but it, I'm going to. But if it's possible, I'd like to be involved with, with the work. But I'll try, and, try not to slow you down because I know time is money. Is that all right? You know, that, so I've got to do the roof on this house. And so I'm, <laughs> the guy that I've, I've called, uh, the, the one guy I've called and, and gotten a quote for, I said, hey, look, you don't have to like, char- charge me more or less money, whatever. Like, I'm certainly not looking to get paid to work on my own house, but I've never done a roof. Right. So could you, you know, which, which, which on a roof, getting the lines right and setting the valleys is probably the most difficult part of it. You know, right. the rest is just kind of nailing shingles down and, you know, but. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's what I get from a lot. Of the, I, people are amazed that, that I can go look at some plans and I can take a sheet of plywood and turn it into a cabinet. People yeah. are, you're, you're not impressed by that because you know, how simple it I mean it at least on its face it's it's a simple process. You cut them the right size, you nail them together, everything's but the number of people who are just amazed like I'm doing some kind of sorcery out yeah. there in the shop is the same roofing is the same thing. Plumbing, yeah. elect you know, mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself. I, I get people all the time that are like, Oh, my air conditioner's not working. I say, Well, what's wrong with it? Well, I don't know. Did you check this? Did you check that? Mm-hmm. No, I can't do that. I said, look, and not taking anything away from, from the trades, but let's face it, the guy who came out to fix your, your, your sewer line, he, he ain't building rockets in his spare time. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's not a, a knowledge-intense in, uh, thing to go out and clear a, a plug drain. It, but it is it's, an experience. It, it, it is it, an experience. It, and it you does have require to, that. 
you do have to know that. And I'm not knocking any plumbers, electricians, or, or any of that. It's just plumbers make really damn good money. Too. They make really, really good money. And there is a lot more to it than just unplugging yes, the toilet. Yeah. That's the simple. But people who won't do the simple side of it, people who don't know how to change their own oil. Now, I, I'm, I'm a girl dad. All girls. Every one of them knows how to change their own oil. They don't do it. None of them do it. They all take it to Walmart or Jiffy Lube or, or wherever they want to take it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I, I would not feel right leaving this earth without them at least knowing how to do it. But it's not about that one task. Right. I don't think. It's about, look, this is how easy these problems that are going to plague your life are, are going to be to solve. And these are, right. these are mechanical problems that you have no experience for. But in five minutes, I taught you the fundamentals of a wrench, righty, tighty, lefty, loosey, what good and tight is, right. you know, what forearm tight is versus, versus elbow tight. Right. You know, you've, you're, you're telling all these things, probably having a discussion about why it's important to change your oil, what it does in an, in an engine, why it's black when it comes out, and why you have to change the filter and the filter holds oil too. Like you're telling all these things. And so you're expanding there's a quote that I love, and it's it's when you change the way the look, when you change the way you look at things, the things you, that you look at change. So you've so you've developed a perspective that they never had before. You know, right. and now it's part of their world. And, and the biggest thing is is, and, and one of my daughters, and I think it may have been the the Mardi Gras criminal. She had a she had a, she had a boyfriend. <laughs> I almost lost my drink with that. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're good. But you're good. She uh, she had a boyfriend one time who was just utterly amazed at all these cool things that she she knew how to change her own oil, change a tire on a car. I'm like, girls, what are you supposed to do if you're halfway home and you blow a tire, and you don't know how to change? I mean. I'm telling you, the vast majority of drivers out there in this world today don't know how to change a tire. My last assignment, I was called to base by my subordinate who didn't know how to change his tire. Mm-hmm. He went out. He was trying to go get some food because he didn't know how to cook for himself either. So, you know, pro- problems all around. But, but anyway, I get out there, and I say, uh, okay, where's your, where's your spare tire? He's like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, well, typically it's in the back. So, so, so we go through those um, – we go through that, but it's like I'm, I'm asking him. I'm using the Socratic method, you know, asking him, you know, about things to get him to do it. Like the goal here is I'm going to teach you to fish, you know. But he didn't understand how to hook the tire iron onto the nut, you know. Like he he couldn't get the stakes, he couldn't line the things up, just all around. And then he's like, he's he's trying to turn it, but he can't turn it. And I said, okay, so you need more strength, right? He's like, yeah. And I was like, well, there's a couple ways to do that. You can use a lever. Right, Archimedes, you know, right. had a had a brief talk about that, and I said, uh, but you can also take advantage of your body weight. I said you can maybe raise it a little higher and just maybe sit on it and see what happens. And you try that, it didn't work, and I was like, well, let's combine the idea of the lever. Why don't you move a little farther down? Got it unlocked, you know. So a lot of those things, just teaching those fundamental, you know, parts that are that you find in an apprenticeship of a trade, right? By, by a craftsman or a master, right? Right. But yeah, it's it's. It's interesting. A lot of a lot of people don't. You know, I, I was I was ready to wire up a a a phone plug for power in case we had to get to to, to charge our phones in case we in case we lost power during the storm. Right. <laughs> you can pull three to five volts out. You, you can pull thirty volts too. Yeah. But <laughs> um, you used to you used to be able to. I mean, the old systems, and I'm sure these are all gone now. You know, they used to a twenty eight volt what we called a talk battery. Right. And and it was always live, even if you know the power company killed the mm-hmm. power to your house. You'd, or I'm um, not the power, but killed the phone line to your house. 
you could still pull that 28 volts off. Right. That's, that's an old, that's an old trick. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I would recommend a generator. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, at the time I didn't, I didn't have one, but it's, it's something I learned when I was uh, probably 16 how to do, I, I, again, I'm, I'm just interested in just people's ability to like impart their will on the world, right. you know, even if that's, even if that's making something fit or getting something undone that, that, that's been stubborn or just solving a problem like, like right. we're kind of talking about. But. Yeah. So I wonder your troop that you taught to change his time. You think he was, what was his reaction to learning how to, to, I mean, did he say, man, I did that. Or did he say, that was dumb. Well, he, I'm, I'm going to go play Nintendo in my dorm room. No, he was, he was genuinely amazed that, that he could do it and that it was that simple. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the way most people are. They're like, ah, it's that easy. Yeah. yeah, most things and, are. And, and <laughs> why, why didn't he, he want to do that? Well, he didn't want to do that because he was afraid he didn't know how to do it. And uh, one of the things, if you, if you look at too much of my social media stuff, you'll see you know, one of my favorite sayings, and I don't know, I think I made this up, but I, maybe not. Failure is the wisdom that comes from trying. Like what, what is failure? Has anybody ever died because they, they, they couldn't do one of the – I mean – you talk about hiring a, a plumber to come out and unclog your toilet. Is he going to charge you any extra if you try to, if you watch a YouTube video? Well, so nowadays they may, but, <laughs> but you're not a, a total failure if you tried that. If, if your troop had tried to change the tire and didn't, couldn't, that just lets him know that, hey, you're not really cut out. You need to get some help changing a tire. We're so afraid of failure. We're like, oh, I, I could never do that. I'm sure your troop was the same way. I could never change a tire by myself. Failure is the wisdom that comes from trying. Yeah. There, there's no, there's no, every successful person in this world has had a failure at some point. On their, at some point along that journey, you, it, and history always ties back, you know, Thomas Edison had, you know, six million inventions that never did anything. Yeah. You know, are those failures? No, those are just learning points that he, trust me, I've had a lot of learning points <laughs> in my life. Those were not failures. Those were learning points of how not to do stuff. Yeah. But I've always been one to just say, and I, and I know you are too, because I look around your shop and I see all the stuff and you didn't go to a trade school and learn how to use a table. No. saw. you said, let me, let me ask somebody that's got one or let me in, in today's age, let me go to YouTube and see, Oh, Okay. So I don't want to touch that spinny part. I got that. <laughs> so I only want to bring the blade up just just tall enough to cut through whatever I'm cutting. Mm-hmm. You know, those are things that you you know because you went and learned. I'm surprised at the number of people in the world who would be like, "Oh, I could never operate a table saw." Operating table saw is easy as hitting a button and turning it on. That's right. Now doing it with all your fingers still intact when you're done <laughs> that takes a little skill. But, um, but yeah, I mean, most things in life are just trying, just try it. What's the worst that could, I mean, now I'm not saying, I mean, flying an airplane, that's not something you should just run out and just try it. Try to, <laughs> I mean, let me jump in this airplane and, and, and go see if I can fly it. That's one of those things that you probably need to have a little more structure because, you know, what's the risk of failure? Mm-hmm. Well, the risk of failure is, is you die or worse, you kill a lot of people and you're a little stunt, but unplugging your toilet, what's the worst thing that can happen is you don't unplug the toilet. Yeah. And then you call the guy that you're going to call anyway and have him come out and charge you, you know, 
150 bucks to unplug your toilet mm-hmm. or fix a leaky faucet or, or whatever that is. So <clears throat> I think we always have to look at what's the, what's the cost of failure. And if the cost of failure is minimal, try it. What's the, wor- what's the worst that could happen? Well, I, I, tell, I would tell people that would uh, come up to me and were getting out of the military and they would ask me for advice, which on the service is a pretty stupid thing because especially when I was asked while I was in the service and they're asking me about getting out, like what in the world makes you think I'm qualified to answer the question? But I try to do my best and I'd say, well, I think the first thing is get your perspective right. You're going to walk out of here and probably fail pretty quickly, but your goal should be to fail at something very quickly. And that way you can pick yourself up very quickly and be vectored towards something. Now, I tell younger people when they're trying to figure out what to do, I say, pour yourself, pour yourself into something, right? Fail at it. And then if you decide you don't want to do it, you will pick up a vector, a direction to move to align yourself with what you're supposed to be doing. And eventually when you do that enough, you'll be pointed directly at what you're supposed to be pointed at. I like to tell air traffic controllers because training's tough. Right. I said, uh, growth, all we're trying to do is grow you into an air traffic controller. Growth is not making the same mistake twice. That's what growth is. You've got a lot of individual tasks in your training plan that you have to do and you have to do correctly. So do them correctly and stop making mistakes, right? And you're going to achieve growth. It's it's that simple. It's the little incremental steps towards completion, like assembling a cabinet is getting your measurements right, making your cuts precise, assembling things without breaking things. You know, it's these small little tasks that make up the cabinet. It's not the cabinet itself. Exactly. And it's, Again, even with, with going back to my military days, and I probably got that mindset that I, given enough time and effort, I could do anything. There's that, nothing, well. That's honestly let, the way I feel. Let, let me rephrase that. With, with certain exceptions, I will never be able to play a piano. I probably could never play a guitar. No, I mean, at least not to the, you know, to the Eddie Van Halen. I can make some noises with a guitar, but I'm <laughs> never going to be Eddie Van Halen. So, I bet you but, if you poured yourself into that in 15 years, you could. 10 uh, years, you could. Uh, but again, you're just not interested in doing that. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe yeah, I'm just yeah. not interested in that. So you can't but, see yourself doing that. But anything else that a human being can do, for the most part, short of some of those artistic talents that are just God-given, yeah. I, I can do. If there's somebody that can hang that door straight, then so can I. And I really got that. I remember this in basic training, um, Lackland Air Force Base. We had a drill instructor. You know, your first couple days there, it's just just screaming and yelling and disorientation, and you're like, what did I get myself into? Damn it, Ron, why did you talk me into this? (laughs) And in the Air Force, at least at that time, we had these barracks that, that you had like an upstairs and a downstairs, and then below was a big courtyard. I know those have all been torn down now. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, a museum. But, <laughs> you know, whoever was in the floor, either directly above or directly below you, was they were getting ready to graduate. So you would come in, and, and that would be, I think they called it your father flight or whatever. So, like, those first couple days, those were the – that, that was a team that came down and kind of showed you the ropes, how to make your bed, how they wanted you to clean it. You know, they showed you how to do it by the, by the training order way. And then they showed you how, what you could get by with, mm-hmm. you know, kind of instilling that. And, you know, they'd spend hour or two, a couple of evenings. And I remember one day that our, our, our TI came in and he said, you're at the point that some of you think you can't do this. And I, and we were, it was, 
it was all men at that. I mean, in my flights mm-hmm. and in our squadron, we didn't have any females. So they were still segregated flights at that, that time. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but he came in and said, some of you are going to say, you can't do this. He said, I want each one of you to look at that father flight that comes out. These are guys that, you know, they had a, a grand total of five weeks in the air force where we only had three days. So, yeah. you know, they're experienced guys, but they're about to graduate. So apparently they figured something out. He said, Pick out the dumbest guy in that group <laughs> and then ask yourself, <laughs> is he better than me? Right. And, and, and I've, I've really um, kind of lived my life like that. I've, oh, anytime I wanted to do something. So if I wanted to make a podcast, which I don't, but, you know, I say, well, you know, Brian makes a podcast. He, he's got no inherent skill that I don't have. Right. So why can't I make a podcast? Right. You know, Brian can fly an airplane. I think I could learn to fly an airplane. Yeah. You know, there's you got to know your limitations. For sure. Again, I'm never going to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen. I'm not going to try. But um, anything else you have to look at, you know, find that biggest idiot that's doing it already and say, okay, if that guy can change oil, I certainly can change oil. Yeah. And, and, there's been a lot of idiots in my life that I've looked up to <laughs> to say, look, and hopefully I've been an idiot to a lot of other people who've come behind me. That's say, right. Well, and that's a great way Jeff to look Collins at it. If Jeff Collins can do that, yeah. if he can run a table saw, surely I can run a table saw. Yeah. I'm twice as smart as he is. Mm-hmm. Surely if he can build a CNC, I can build one. It's just a matter of knowing that person and really knowing them enough to say, yeah, okay, Brian's good at that, but I, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not that much better. And I always think back, you know, it was 30 years ago, maybe a little longer that I was in basic training and, and I listened to some guy yelling at me th- and pick the dumbest guy in that group and then tell yourself whether you're smarter or dumber than him or whether you have more heart or more desire than what he had. That's right. And, and I, I picked that guy out. He's he probably, <laughs> he probably made chief, but, um, right. but I, you know, I looked – I looked around. And I said, "Yeah, this this guy's got no inherent skill that I don't have. Mm-hmm. So why can't I do it?" And uh, and like I said, my true hope is that somebody has looked at me as that idiot and say, um, "Well, you know, Jeff did this or that, and he's he's an idiot. I surely I can do better than that." So yeah, that's a great that's way to look of, at it. Kind of where I'm at. Yeah, so, yeah. Which I used kind of throughout my my second life. You know, I I got out of the military. And um, was was wanting to do something different, and uh, I, I had spoiled my wife early in our relationship, and she grew accustomed to living indoors. So whenever <laughs> I got, so whenever I got out of the military, I, I needed a job. You know, at that time, I got med boarded out, and and I torn my back up, and there was pretty much nothing they could do because of where it was at. They said, "There's nothing we can do. You can't run." I, you know, I was, I was hurting. I was fat and I was like, and I'm done with this. I, I have ser- the air force has served its purpose for me and I have served my purpose for the air force. So they sent me to the med board. They came back and they said, okay, we're medically separating you. I've been in 15 years. And I said, well, damn, did you get medically retired? Medically separated. Oh, okay. So, um, so no, I got a severance package and a good swift kick and six months of TRICARE. So then here I am, and I'm like, I, I wasn't, like, destitute or anything. Don't think, I mean, I made some 
pretty good financial decisions in my life, and mm-hmm. and uh, and I was able to 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 do that unscathed. So a lot of people couldn't, and I understood that. Um, and and in a post nine eleven world, the 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 severance for military members got a lot better. Also, and I don't know if, if they had made the rounds by the time you you got out, but for but for me when I got out, and this was just last year, it was it was pretty good financially, not not very much, but like just kind of free services that are out there. And then also um, the way they modified the GI bill was beneficial because I could get a housing allowance. You know, that was, that was a great hedge in the, right. you know, in the transition. So. so again, back to, to my old friend, Ron, back in West Virginia, you know, I'm still thankful to him to this day because I got out. Um, I, ha- I was stationed, we were stationed in Alaska and it was hella expensive to live up there. Yeah. We had owned a house here on the coast that I had bought when I was 25 and had been renting it out. And this was post-Hurricane Katrina, like mm-hmm. right after Katrina. My wife, she still, she was living with me in Alaska, but her boss had just called her. Like the day I found out I was getting med boarded, her old boss called and said, God, I wish you would come back to the coast. I need you to come back to work so bad. I said, well, guess what? Here's your chance. So mm-hmm. we moved. Um back got out got the little severance package i think we got i think six months of tricare and 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 that was about it and then they said you know go see the va and have a good day and um we owned some property in alaska as well that we sold and that kind of carried over and then i used my gi bill the old gi bill Mm -hmm. this was i don't i think this i started school before the post 9-11 came about or Mm -hmm. it came about during my my schooling um, used the GI Bill to go to nursing school. Okay, um, what what prompted that? Well, uh, again, did you uh, did you have a nurse and you're like, I'm at least smarter than you? Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened, um, without a doubt. And they pay you a lot of money to be bad at what you're doing. <laughs> so I I have always had two jobs. <clears throat> You know, when I was in the military, I always moonlighted. I always did something weird. You know, I worked at a pawn shop doing just pawn bro. You know, that's when I got my tool addiction. People <laughs> would come in, you know, we'd beat them up over some, some tools, and then we'd sell them dirt cheap. Great business plan, by the way. <laughs> um, so I did pawn broker. Uh, I was a firefighter. I had worked as a as a firefighter in city of uh, not city of Biloxi, city of Diaverville uh-huh. years ago when they only had one or two paid firefighters on shift. They had reserve firefighters that would come in and um, kind of back up the the paid guy because two two paid fire that's enough to get a fire truck to the scene. You need more people than that. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple of years and I moved to Alaska. My wife and I were stationed up there for for four or five years, and I started working or a paid on call gig with their local fire department. Um, and, and it was great. So I realized I was getting a little older and firefighting is a young man's game. That's why most of them can only do 20, 25 years before they have to retire. A lot like the military. Um, so I realized I need to do something else. So they, they were offering an EMT course. Hmm. And I said, I've always wanted to do that. So I went, the fire department actually paid me to go like, three evenings a week to sit there in class. You know, it was taught by the fire department. They got me an EMT certificate. I said, that's great. In Alaska, um, they don't, they, at that time, I think only had one or two paramedic courses that you could take, but there was no way I could do that. But in Alaska, 
to make up for that, they have different levels of EMT. So you have EMT one, which is your, just like your EMTs here on the coast. And then you have an EMT two that could do the respiratory stuff. They could do the intubations, put the tube in your throat, do some medicines, IV lines, all that. And they have EMT three, which can do the whole gamut. They can do all the drugs, the, the shock in your, shock in your heart and all that. So I would do that on weekends. So we worked six hour rotating shifts. So you could come on at 6 PM and work till midnight and then you go home and, and then another crew. I would always go in Friday, 6 PM and I would work till Sunday at 6 PM. So I'd do 40 hour, 48 hours every weekend. My partner was in nursing school. She was doing the same thing. She'd come in Friday. She'd get off Sunday. <coughs> Whenever she found out I was getting out, she said, you should go to nursing school. I said, nursing school? I'm not going to go to nursing school. What kind of crap is that? And, uh, you know, she started telling me, well, you know, it's not all, you know, just wiping butts and, and passing trays. You it's know, a broad there's, field. There's a, there's a lot more to that. And I, yeah. and I started thinking about that. And I had a little time when I was going through the, the med board process. And I said, you know, she's kind of right. And, you know, at that point in my life, I was already confident enough to know that I didn't need to look to, well, she can do it. I can do it. But <laughs> I really did. I mean, she did it. Now, she has moved on to, to get commissioned in the public health corps, and she's mm. a, she's a oh, I think she just put on oh five, 5 um, and that wasn't that long ago. So, she, so she's doing well. So I don't, I don't make it sound like um, she's an idiot. Yeah, so, you, were, you were looking at it from the standpoint of, like, what – What's different between us? You right. know what I mean? Like, but, like but we're the I same. I could definitely use her to say, and trust me, I called her plenty when I was in nursing school. Like, mm-hmm. Jody, what the heck is this talking about? <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was one of the old guys in nursing school, one of the few guys. I only had two, two, uh, two men in my class. Yeah, it's definitely a female-dominated. Uh, still is. It's still about, uh, about 92% um, female. Dominated. That's close. <laughs> There's not many of us um, out there, so I am kind of a, a rarity, but I love it. And and you you hit something earlier and said, um, you know, we pay you a lot of money, and there it's not a misconception that RNs do make a considerable. They make a good wage. I'll just yeah. say that if you're an RN and and you're not living comfortably, it's because of bad choices that you've made. And that's, and, and to be clear, an RN is a four-year nurse, no. a, f- a four-year degree nurse, no? No. Okay. Um, in, in most states, you have different entries into registered nurse. Um, all of them, you can do an associate degree. Um, MGCCC, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College, offers a two-year associate's degree in nursing. Okay. And with that, once you graduate with that, you can... Um, take the exam and become a registered nurse. Okay. You, there's different points. You can also do the same with a uh, Bachelor of Science in Nursing. and that's it, it, Most of your universities offer a BSN. Um, really, it, it's about the same amount of schooling with the four-year degree versus the two-year degree. Mm. You have to do a lot of the philosophy and, mm. and uh, s- not even so much the science, but the management courses. The only difference between an associate degree nurse and the Bachelor degree nurse, as far as actual nursing classes, is a leadership class and a community um, nursing mm. uh, clinical hour thing. Yeah. It's not that much. It's, okay. it's really not that much. And then your, your master's level 
um, moves on into that. Those are the ones who can do the teaching and a lot of your leaders have a master's and then you can, you can do the doctorate level as well. Either two branches of that, your, your PhD, your PhD prepared nurses or your, they're your researchers. And then we have a, um, a practice doctorate, which is a doctor of nursing practice, which in, at least in theory, those are the ones that take all of the knowledge and research that the um, PhD folks make, and then they convert that into real world. They turn knowledge into wisdom. Okay. That's, that's the concept behind that. Gotcha. So no, are those your nurse practitioners? Is that, n- not, or is that separate? That's separate. That's okay. a, that's a, a separate gig altogether. So, um, Years ago, most registered nursing programs were actually taught through a hospital, and those mm. were your dip, what they call diploma programs, where um, Charity Hospital in New Orleans was world famous for their diploma program. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's since gone by the wayside. I think most of them have. There used to be one or two left in the country, um, but you would go to Ocean Springs Hospital, and it was almost like an apprenticeship for an electrician. You know, you went in the morning and you did your classes and then you went and worked in the hospital until eight o'clock that night or whatever. And then you did that for three years and they, you know, stuck a, a sticker on you and said, yeah, all right, did, you're yeah. a nurse. There now. you go. But yeah. no, in, in, in modern times, you can be an associate degree nurse. Um, it does take a little longer than your typical two year um, associate degree. So if you were to go get an associate arts at, at the Gulf Coast Community College, this will take usually a semester longer. So normally you have to go, I think, like the two summer semesters if you mm. were to start. You know, in the fall, you'd go all through, go through the summer semester. But you can do it. Uh, yeah. And you can get through. And as a matter of fact, when, when I was in that situation, I still needed uh, a few classes, uh, mm-hmm. prereq classes. So I went out to uh, the Gulf Coast Community College biology i didn't have any biology class i was going to be an engineer i didn't need yeah. any of that i didn't have any of the touchy-feely courses i didn't have the humanities the, the philosophy the sociology any of right marriage and family any of that kind kind of so i went you know got some discount knowledge there to junior college and um and took that and then said well, i'm going to transfer all this and i'm going to go to usa because they've got an accelerated bachelor's program and i said no i don't want to drive to mobile every day i'll just do the program here at gulf coast Signed up for that, and it gave me flashbacks to the inefficiencies of the military, and I was still a little, <laughs> I was still a little sour from that experience. So I said, I happened to be driving down the beach, and this is when William Carey University was still on the beach. Oh, I remember now, this that. Was yeah. Post post Katrina, um, I had just met a girl that day that, that was in their nursing program, and I just kind of whipped in there and said, "Let me see what this is all about." And I went in there, and it was. It was like I'd come home or something, you know. <laughs> the ladies like, "Oh, well, glad you're here, you know. Let me take you over and meet the dean and 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 the president and and walk you around. Let me give you a coffee cup." And she did all that, and I was gotcha. sold. Yeah. So <laughs> I went and I actually finished my bachelor's uh, six months before I would have finished my associate's degree, just really? because of the way their semesters lined up, and I didn't have to take any of those funny mm, semester classes. Gotcha. So became a, an ER nurse, and that was it. I yeah. thought that's what you wanted to talk to me about was, you know, coronavirus and becoming a nurse and a oh. nurse practitioner. Oh, again, I'd get there. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we were, uh, we were well on our way, but so, so you, so you became a nurse, you became an ER nurse. So how, 
did you pick working in the ER or, or because nursing again is such a broad field you can go multiple different directions it, it is um and yes I picked I, I went into nursing to become an ER nurse only to find out later that that being an ER nurse will suck the humanity out of your life it yes will, it will eat your soul I love ER nurses um but that's a hard job um it's hard seeing people on the worst day of their life every single day. Um, so I have moved from, and again, I worked a couple of years, four or five years on the ambulance. I'd been around that emergency side. That was just kind of my gig. That's why I went to nursing school was to become an ER nurse. So while I was going to nursing school, um, I needed health insurance for my family. Mm-hmm. I had a wife and two kids still at home. So I took a job at a local hospital as an ER tech, which I was fully qualified for, just for the insurance. You know, I, I think they paid me minimum wage or, or 10 cents more an hour. It, yeah. it didn't matter. Um, but I needed health insurance for my kids. You know, I'd been in the military, and you know, after six months, my TRICARE ran out. Yeah. I could get coverage through uh, the VA, but my, my wife and kids couldn't. So I had to find something for them. So I took a job working full-time hours. So the whole time I was in nursing school, I would go to nursing school all week. I would work all weekend, 12-hour shifts in the ER, just enough to keep my my full-time status so I could keep the insurance. That was it. So yeah. whenever I graduated from nursing school, again, you know, total Jeff move here. But all of my classmates, you know, they were still on their, their post-graduation cruise or drinking binge or whatever they did. <laughs> I graduated on a Saturday. Um, I applied to to the board on Monday. I got an authorization to test, to take the, the it's called the NCLEX, which is the, the licensing exam. And I tested on Wednesday. I was licensed the following Friday. So in six days from graduation to RN, the following Monday I started as a uh, registered nurse. Wow. And kind of, that was history. But yeah, that, that's a whole, that's a whole different kind of nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, from just about, and they're all specialized now. There is no general nurse anymore. Um, everything's specialized, whether you're working just a med surge ward or you're working ICU. Um, there's not a general nurse. The concept used to be everybody became a med surge nurse and then you could specialize. Well, that's no longer the case. Those med surge nurses are far more specialized than I was as an ER nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the ER nurses, and I, and I think I think your architect friend said this best that, you know, we knew a lot about a little where those other nurses knew a little about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to, to talk because kind of how it goes when, when you admit a patient to the hospital, you go to the ER, they say, yeah, you need to come to the hospital. Then they, they admit you into the hospital. The ER nurse takes you up there and introduces you to your new nurse. We call it giving them a report and say, hey, you know, this is Brian. He's, he's had chest pain for a couple of days. You know, we just need to roll out a, a cardiac event. Uh, those young Floor nurses would always be like, Jeff, how do I get to go to work in the ER? And I would tell them, you don't want to go work in the ER. It's so exciting because, you know, everybody wants to think back to the show ER, mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy or whatever right, it is right. where it's, you know, blood and guts. It's not. That's in there, but that is not what you do. every. And yeah. I used to tell them, I said, look, let me come up here and change a bandage with you because that would be exciting to me because – the ER, you don't ever change a bandage. You put it on once and 
and you you, you send them on. It's mm. all about kind of sorting these people out as to whether you're going to die or you're not going to die. Yeah. If you're going to die, come on back. If you're not, set, have a seat over there. And that's really all it is. And it truly, you almost have to forget caring about people because it's rough to, to, like I said, watch somebody on the worst day of their life. And you just want to kind of break down and, and feel for them. But you got three other rooms that, you know, somebody needs a work excuse because they don't want to go to work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you have to go in there and put that same bright smiley face on for them. You can yeah. go in there all sobby because you just told this this wife of 65 years that, you know, her husband's not coming back. So it hardens. So I had to get out of it. I've taken a couple of jobs in, in management mm-hmm. for a while. I, I'll get back into bedside nursing before the end of my career. Uh-huh. I'm still having fun, and I'm still uh, getting to help a lot of people Yeah, in my line of work meet their dreams. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm 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 curious about your opinion. Uh, I, I read I read an article about how hospitals want to shift more towards nurse practitioners as primary care providers. Uh, and there's I don't know if there's a union of doctors, but there's a medical association that's primarily made up of doctors, and they're kind of pushing back on that. Um, maybe because because paying a nurse practitioner is you know cheaper than an MD, and it seems, at least on the surface, again, the article seems to be written on the pro-nurse practitioner perspective. But I'm curious, do you have an opinion on that? As a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> Here, do me a favor. Could you, could you just kind of twist that a little closer to you? There you go, right there. Right. Yeah. So, as a matter of fact, I do. And hopefully, I, uh, I don't alienate too many of my nurse friends <laughs> when I say this. And I will say it to anyone who will listen. A nurse practitioner is not equivalent to a medical doctor mm-hmm. or a doctor of osteopathy. A, a nurse practitioner is not a physician. With that said, I know nurse practitioners that I would hands down have work on me over a lot of the doctors I've met. That's not to say that, that but I'm telling you, if you had to pick a group and say, okay, nurse practitioners or MDs, they have, have butted heads a lot because – the medical associations, and that's the doctor union, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, they have a lot of political pull, and especially in Mississippi. They have not embraced nurse practitioners as being a part of the team because they view them as a direct competition to what they're doing, and to a certain extent they are. But in reality, when we have such a, a shortage of primary care providers, it makes sense to put somebody else that position so that's a lot of that I, I know nurse practitioners that that want to be treated act like good, act good. like and charge just like they were a medical doctor um, a nurse practitioner for those that don't know has a master's degree and they have about five to seven hundred hours of clinical training on top of that a medical doctor or a doctor of osteopathy has that usually in, before they're done with medical school and then they have to go on to a residency. Which now, is usually like two years? No, a medical residency 
I think for a family practice doc now is three. Oh, okay. But every residency is, is structured a little different. Some okay. of them will be three, some of them will be four. When you get into some of the complicated surgery stuff, now you're looking at a five-year surgery rotation and then a, a three-year, say, neurosurgery rotation. Mm-hmm. So it's an extensive training. They're not comparable. I, and you'll never be able to convince me of that, that getting your master's degree online at Walden University and going out to a, to a Urgicare and working a couple shifts does not equate to um, a medical degree. Now, with, like, like I said earlier, do I think that you need that medical degree to handle most problems that a primary care doctor runs across in their practice? Absolutely not. Do I think most nurse practitioners are fully capable of managing, you know, my type 2 diabetes or my high blood pressure or my COPD or CHF? Yes, I do. But they need to do it in concert with a medical doctor who has that experience behind them that they can call and say, hey, this person has COPD. I've had them on this med. It's not working. Oh, did you check this lab? They need they need that. That's, and that's not to take anything away from nurse practitioners. There are a lot of f- phenomenal nurse practitioners out there. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> in the mid-2000s, um, they came out to say everybody was pushing towards this nurse practitioner thing, nurse practitioner thing. So what they did is a lot of schools spun up nurse practitioner programs. It used to be to get into a nurse practitioner program, you had to have five solid years of nursing experience before you, they would even consider you. Mm. Now we got, we got kids, I'll say, you know, 20-somethings, graduate in May, start nurse practitioner school in August. I just don't think there's enough experience because they've made all of these schools, they're paying their professors, they got to put people in those seats, so they've moved back. Now, if you compare that to how our anesthesiologists and our nurse nurse anesthetists, CRNAs, how they have done this, the the, uh, anesthesiologists, instead of fighting it, said, yeah, we'll have some of that, but we're in control of it. Yeah. So they say this is what, and they were, I mean, I don't think there's anesthesiologists around now. His whole job is walking around looking at CRNAs going, you all right in there? Yeah, we're good. Okay, I'll be out here if you need me. And they just walk around. Most anesthesiologists I've seen, you know, they, they kick back in a recliner. But they're there, and they oversee that, and they have that because CRNAs can't do a lot of the things that they can do unless there's an anesthesiologist on the premises. So yeah, it, that's why you see that. So it's kind of the tale of – it's two different tales. You've got the nurse practitioner versus, you know, primary care MD that have – you know, they're just button heads because you got one side saying, I can do what you can do. And they're saying, oh, you can't do what I can do. So surely there's, there's a set of doctor um, centric tasks that a nurse practitioner could do given the, given the qualifications, or would you still say like in the case of the young person that's in their twenties going, you know, starting that school so soon, you should probably curtail the policy to that situation because that's the, that's probably the, hot, the, the riskiest situation and, and is also becoming more common. Would yeah. you say that's, that's the way to look at that? Oh, I, there's certainly nothing that a physician can, I mean, 
most of the physicians that I've met, they're human beings. Mm-hmm. There's a few of them I have questions about, but most <laughs> of them are human beings. And, and, and they can, I, I mean, I can do whatever. They, I mean, I'm sure given enough time, I could do a brain surgery, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the right training. The, the difference is they've been, they've done that time. Yeah. They've yeah. stood elbow to elbow in somebody's skull, you know, having somebody tell them, no, don't cut that part, cut this part. No, you don't. They've learned that. Not saying that they're better or worse. I'm just saying, me having a master's degree in nursing does not equate to that level of training. Now, like I said, could I get to that level? I'm sure I could, you know, but that would require me going through a residency, which requires me going through medical school, Mm -hmm. which I have not done. Right. Um, So, I, I do think that there is a place in medicine for nurse practitioners. That elevates them from their current place? Yeah, and most of them are. Uh, Nurse practitioners in general probably make, depending upon the setting, um, 25 to 50% more than a registered nurse because there's a lot more responsibility that goes along with that. Um, Mississippi has transitioned. They are transitioning to a full practice authority state where um, nurse practitioners can practice without a I think now it's called a collaborating physician. You don't have to have an overseer, but you have to have a collaborating physician. And that's yeah. that physician that you can pick up the phone with anytime you're in practice and say, you know, hey, Dr. Brian, you know, what do I do about this? Now, could could I, they start their own practice? They can. I believe they can start their own practice in, in Mississippi as long as they have a physician collaborator. Now, it used to be you had to have a physician overseer and you know people got a little sensitive to that term or or sponsor or whatever they called it now it's a collaborator but yes there are a lot of a lot of these um urgent cares mm-hmm. are owned and run by a nurse practitioner so but somewhere in there they're paying a a doctor to to oversee but it's not a direct over mm-hmm. oversight like with an anesthesiologist and a crna mm-hmm. they don't have to be there on the on the, most of them probably never come to the practice. They just look at some records and sign off to say, yeah, I saw Brian's practice. He's good. So who's, who's responsible for the malpractice? Which brings in who, when you have a, um, the, the nurse practitioner who has their own practice has to provide their own malpractice or, you know, commit basically financial suicide. The big thing that gets them, even in states that you do not have to have a physician collaborator, you can't get insurance without a physician collaborator. So even if the state of Mississippi came down and said, okay, nurse practitioners, hang your shingle, a lot of the insurers will say, no, we still want you to have a physician um, collaborator it for seems, insurance purposes. It seems that's like that's pretty convenient for, for politicians. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's intelligent design in, in concert with these insurance companies because insurance companies, they, 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 they help influence a lot of things at, at, at the state level. Insurance companies affect your car policy. Um, well, I'm sorry, the amount of deer that can be killed in a state because of the car policy uh, uh, um, insurance risk. But anyway, so yeah, it, it, it does strike me as, as that might be by design because they're gonna, they, they get to say, okay, well, we're going to make this a thing. We're going to make it possible, but it's not really going to be a thing because they're still going to have to provide um, 
a, a, a collaborative uh, uh, physician in order to be able to operate and be insured in the first place. Absolutely. And the, um, you know, insurance companies 100% control healthcare in this country. And within that, I use Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. um, CMS, which is the center of middle Medicare, Medicaid services. I don't know what happened to all the extra letters, but it goes by <laughs> CMS. They control healthcare in this country. Um, they decide what will be reimbursed and what doesn't get reimbursed. And then there's a trickle down from that. So if I say, okay, uh, Medicare is no longer going to reimburse for um, colonoscopies. Well, guess what Ocean Springs Hospital is going to stop doing? They're going to stop doing colonoscopies. You know why? Because if the insurance doesn't cover it, no one's going to come in there and, and pay that kind of money to have somebody run a camera up your backside yeah. and say, oh, looks good. You got a few polyps. Come see us again next year. And that's the market response. Mm-hmm. So then government must come, come in and subsidize it then, right? Right. So then what, what ends up happening is Medicare, Medicaid says, okay, we'll do one colonoscopy every five years. But you have to make sure that that person's blood pressure is under control before you can do the, the, the procedure. So now guess what you got? So now if you show up on the day of your colonoscopy and your blood pressure is 150 over 90, if they do it, they don't get reimbursed for it. And that drives, and I'm not, that, that was completely made up yeah. to my knowledge. That's not a rule, but those are the kind of rules that they make up. You know, they say, okay, if, if your, your patient, while they're in the hospital, has a fall, don't bill Medicaid for that. That's on you. Well, guess what the hospitals have done? Well, now they're having to eat the cost of that fall. They've bumped fall way up on the discussion ladder of management to make sure that they're not having to eat that cost anymore. Um, all hospitals are, are profit driven, whether they're nonprofit government or a for-profit. And I've worked for all of the above. While it may not be making more money than you take in, it, there's, there's a, there's a business model in there. There's a business model for all of that. COVID helped me realize that. I, and, and it's something that, that when I, heard about it like I knew but it's not something you think about but hospitals suffered also during the pandemic because you know they were under financial pressure because they couldn't take in these sort of for-profit services like plastic surgery and whatnot and there's some some plastic surgery that's 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 necessary following a major accident or what have you uh, and I think a lot of people were 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 kind of surprised by that and again that's with you know the the different state organizations come mm-hmm. in and say what Ocean Springs Hospital can and can't do. And if they come down, the governor comes down and says, okay, you can't do this kind of surgery. Well, maybe you can't do colonoscopies. Well, mm-hmm. I assure you that any facility that's doing colonoscopies, that's keeping the lights on just from a business perspective. Because, you know, they bill a lot of money for a quick, so, you know, colonoscopy, you're in there really less than 15 minutes on most cases, unless there's something crazy that, that they need to look. But, you know, 15, 30 minutes, they're in and out of there. Well, what that means is that one um, gastroenterologist, he may do for an hour. Well, you you extrapolate that out, and they work a 10-hour day when they're in, in, in the surgery. That's a lot of colonoscopies. 
and you figure that the hospital bills, you know, a couple of grand for every one of those four or five grand, and they get reimbursed a grand from Medicare. That's what's keeping that surgery department open sure. so that when you fall and break your leg on a Saturday night, they can go in there and yeah. put your leg back together. If it was, and back to my emergency department days, if it was, everybody would be mad. Oh, I hate these, you know, this isn't a true emergency. Look, if it was only for true emergencies, they couldn't leave the lights on in right. any emergency department. You have to have the, you know, bump, sniffles, all of that stuff to kind of keep the lights on. It kind of makes me think of college football because college football on average pays for 22 other programs or sports. Right. So it's like you, you, you kind of have to have this in order to, to pay for the other things. I went to, uh, I had to get an epidural in my back. I've got an avulsion of the L5 S1 vertebrae. Right. So I go through these periods of like severe pain. It's difficult for me to stand and I won't get the surgery because if I get the surgery, they say I can't play basketball and I'm kind of addicted to playing basketball, but I can't play now anyway. Because of COVID, but I just got the bill today of like what they what they paid for and what I owe and and, and whatnot, and it it really threw me back because the surgery I think or the the epidural was like a fourteen thousand dollars shot or something mm-hmm. of that nature, and of course it shows what the insurance pays for. But I went to a surgery center, which was really interesting to me because it's now I think it was owned by Memorial. Mm-hmm. But I think doctors can go in there and rent out the space for a day and just take care of all these surgeries, and so you get in you get kind of a look into the sort of mass productive uh, business model that this is. And you think that's pretty damn good money. You know, you've got, you've got three or four nurses that I think employ are employed by Memorial. And then mm-hmm. these other doctors come in to do these surgeries and those nurses are just part of the operating cost. Right. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, you know, seeing the business behind it. It, it is. And everything in medicine is there's a business aspect of it. And, you know, I used to work for a, a, a for-profit hospital. And people would often ask me, they're like, well, how, how can you work for a for-profit hospital? I'm like, what do you mean? I said, well, they're just worried about profit. I said, well, look, I'm a for-profit nurse. I'm not doing this for free. I don't, <laughs> I don't mind if, if they're, I mean, you know, they're paying me the same hourly rate that the nonprofit down the Matter of fact, they're paying a little better. So then, then why the, probably then the because non- they're for profit, maybe <laughs> because they're for profit. <laughs> I'm for profit. Therefore, You're, it works out good. Yeah, and there there are some slight changes, but for the most part, every facility has has got the same concerns, you know, of of spending too much money because labor is expensive, and in a hospital, it's really expensive when you start talking about nurses and doctors and mm-hmm. and specialists and technicians. Yeah, it gets expensive, and they and they are definitely looking to do the most with the fewest amount of people. And if they can eliminate half the staff, then you know that's that's a big chunk of their their operating costs. So I think the insurance companies are incentivized to keep costs high as well. And I I realized this when I was deployed to Thumb Rates, uh, uh, Southeast uh, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and. I, I was deployed to this tent city and I broke my finger playing golf. Uh, cause, cause that's those, okay. those are the desert deployments you have in the military or, or in the air force rather. So we had to go off base because they didn't have the x-ray equipment. And so we had to go in civilian clothes. I had to get uh, eight Omani real cause that's how much the, uh, the consultation was going to be. I got four x-rays, a consultation, my name somewhere in Oman, which is, which is a little troubling. 
and sit down with the doctor and he didn't get the images he wanted so I went and got two more all for eight real now it could be the case that it's that subsidized by an agreement with the U.S. military and whatnot but on the surface that's essentially twelve dollars right that I paid and so as an insurance company as a business there's a sort of incentive to to keep the cost high to validate the need for you being there and also, um, insurance companies, there's all sorts of insurance. And I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing we talked about, about having the sort of more less emergency services or the college football aspect, there might be some of that in, in insurance as well, is that the medical insurance funds life insurance as well. Right. Or and the profits from that will for that same company. Probably. Um, it, it's, and I am certainly not an expert when it comes to healthcare finance. That's, that is not my role. That is not what I do. So most of this, you know, I'm just talking outside of my head, but um, I do know from a healthcare consumer and, you know, an example, uh, one of my daughters had a kidney stone. Mm -hmm. So we take her to the emergency. I was, I knew it was a kidney stone. As soon as my wife called me, I was working on night shift and she's like, you know, the girl's doing this. I said, Oh, She's got a kidney stone. Well, she'd never had a kidney stone, so I wasn't certain enough in that to say, just let her go back to bed. Maybe it's a ruptured appendix and she's going to die, or it's a kidney stone. So I said, bring her to the ER. I'll meet you over there. I brought her in. It was a kidney stone. You know, she got a CT scan, bag of fluids, some pain medicine, and some lab work. That was it. The hospital billed Blue Cross Blue Shield, for the CT scan. Now, how insurance works is if I'm a large insurer, I can go to a facility and say, let's negotiate how much I'm going to pay you for each service. And the hospital says, we would like to have your business. Yes, we will agree to those prices. So when it was all said and done, and and Blue Cross and all insurances, they have to send you an EOB, an explanation of benefits. Mm -hmm. That shows where, hey, this hospital billed us this much for your service. This is what we paid them. Right. $17,000. I might have mine over here. Can I just check real quick? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, same stuff. Explanation of benefit. And that explanation of benefit showed they billed me or my insurer $17,000 for that visit. She was there two hours, and I told them what she had when she went in. They confirmed what I already knew. And when it was all over and done with, Blue Cross Blue Shield paid the hospital $1,500. $1,500 on a $17,000 bill. Now, I'm not responsible for the rest of that. You know, I was responsible for my $100 copay or whatever. Uh-huh. So how, you tell me how that hospital can negotiate that price of $1,500, $1,600, and the, hosp- and the hospital bills $17,000, 10 times as much. Yeah, yeah. Was- so, so $0.10 cents on the dollar or $0.25 cents on the dollar. How could they do that? I mean, I, I can't. I can't negotiate with you to come down here and say, I'll buy five gallons worth of gas off next week off of you for 50 cents a gallon. You're, you're going to go broke. So what that tells you is obviously 
that care didn't cost $17,000 if they have agreed to let Blue Cross Blue Shield have it for $1,500. Same thing with, I'm sure that they build, uh, I'm sure that your provider build them way out. And then, yeah. And then, you know, and you'll see that. They'll, they'll bill $1,000 and they reimburse fifty. But how is that? How is that acceptable that they're able to invoice at such a high rate and then and then negotiate? And and why can't I go up to the same facility and say, well, hey, I don't want to pay this. I want to lower my insurance by being able to negotiate with you as well. Right. You know, like so, like why couldn't I, I I go to this to this surgical center and say, look, right. I'm I'm just going to pay up here and I'm going to pay you. I I see seventeen grand. I'm going to raise you to uh, fifteen hundred. Right. So and again, you know, looking at at that one, it's about the same. You know, yeah. ten cents on the dollar, right, give or take. Right. Um, so what ends up happening to that bill? What if you didn't have Blue Cross Blue Shield or Humana and you come in and get that service and they bill you $5,000 for a colonoscopy? Sure. Well, you, you can come in beforehand and say, look, I'll negotiate with you. I'll pay you cash. You don't have to worry about billing anybody and you can get it considerably less than that, obviously, because they're going to do it for, for Blue Cross Blue Shield for $500. So obviously they can make a profit at that. They're mm-hmm. not selling that service to Blue Cross Blue Shield for volume at a lower rate than it, it takes them. But somebody put it to me like this. What if you don't pay that bill? What happens to that $17,000? If I didn't have insurance and I'd taken my, my daughter to the hospital and the hospital billed me $17,000 for a CAT scan uh, and 50 cents worth of morphine. What happens to that? Well, I don't pay it. The hospital writes that off. They, you know, they, they hit my credit for the difference. And then they make me, they make me report that now as income. So the hospital can take that $17,000, which they were only expecting to get 1500 from Blue Cross Blue Shield. Mm. They, they write off that 15500 off of their, you know, bottom line, if you will, yeah, on their taxes. Yeah. That's interesting. See, and, and, and I was thinking about the, the, the raising of the price being an incentive for the insurance company only, but it sounds like the incentive is also, also for the hospital. Right. What a waltz. So, so, whenever, <laughs> so whenever the hospital, you know, they put that sign up, up front that says, you know, we donated $37 million to charity care <laughs> last year. Now, hopefully all the healthcare executives aren't going to be, you know, teaming up out here. I'm going to get a, you know, a mob hit on my way out by the brooms. But yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of it is. And again, that's, that's 30,000 foot view. That's kind of what's sure. happening. You know, there's way more that goes into that. Um, well, let's transition over, over to the big topic. And, and I've got, uh, I've got more water too, if you'd like a water. Okay. But, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, COVID and, <laughs> and I definitely wanted to talk to you about it. So from your perspective, what are you seeing? What are your thoughts? The response? We'll go from whatever view, 30,000 to, you know, ground level, whatever you think. Scary. Really? Yeah. And, and what is scary? It's not scary. I can't tell you. You know, I've just I've walked by wards of, of people who are just dying because of COVID. It's not necessarily the case. A lot of people have died from COVID. Mm-hmm. What's scary about COVID is we don't know yeah. about COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, flashback to the 1980s, AIDS was the same way. I mean, everybody, AIDS was a death wish. Anybody who mentioned AIDS, you know, it was, you know, 
it was bad. It's crazy because we didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we know a lot more about it, and and while it's still a lifelong illness, people are living perfectly normal lives with it that you would never know. I mean, they're undetectable. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough about the COVID or the the coronavirus, SARS virus two, whatever they call. It. We don't know enough about that to say with any sort of certainty what's going to happen. Um, and we can look now and see the epi- epidemiology of it all, and we can say, okay, about this many people are going to catch it. Here's what we know about it. It's nowhere near fatal to everyone. The vast majority of people recover from it. And when you catch it, you either have minor symptoms for a couple of days or you die. And that there's not a whole lot of in-between. You don't hear a lot of people saying, you know, I got COVID. I was in the hospital for a couple of days. They had to give me a lot of oxygen, but I got better. You hear people saying, I had COVID. I had the sniffles for a couple of days. I felt a fever, a little achy. Went home over the weekend, rested up, came back to work Monday morning. There are some people fun. that that do spend like a week or more in the hospital, you right. know, and, and 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 go through pain. And there's plenty of people on 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 ventilators, but that's you know more of the consequence of they're they're going to die. Right. But it's definitely a lot of extremes. Yeah, it's and, polarizing. And what scares me and what scares medical professionals across the board is the unknown. What are the long-term effects of COVID? One of, one of my coworkers, she was one of the first ones around here to actually be diagnosed officially with COVID, with the swab and everything. And they mm. said, yep, you have it. She went home, felt bad over a weekend, came back to work. Just last week, and this was in March. So we're talking six, seven months ago. Last week, you know, she was at the uh, cardiologist doing her stress test because now she has some heart conditions and the doctor says, yeah, this is a result of COVID. Now she had this infection in March, not bad, never felt bad. Any of that seven, eight months later, she's my age. So late forties, early fifties. Now she's got cardiac problems from the COVID. That's the stuff. It doesn't scare me that you or I would, would contract COVID. We're probably going to feel bad for a couple of days, probably going to get better. Um, we just don't know how to do that. I've seen 99 and 100-year-old patients from nursing homes that were tested because they're doing surveillance testing who test positive for COVID and have no symptoms. Yeah. And they, they retest them four or five times. It's, it's positive. Um, so that's what's frightening is we just don't know how come how can a 30 year old with no underlying health conditions in peak shape catch covid and die which is very rare i will say and then you can have a 99 year old who catches it and doesn't even have a symptom there's there's something there and we don't know what that something is yet um most fingers now are pointing towards the amount of virus that you initially are exposed to. And this is your viral load. Your viral load is what determines kind of how sick you are. So that 99-year-old that I said, he may have just picked up a a few flakes, if you will, Mm -hmm. and and developed an immune response and started shedding the bacteria, or I'm sorry, the virus particles, versus the 30-year-old who maybe worked in a 
in a closed in position and he got a huge load. So sure. that's what the thought is. But even with that, you know, you and I could both do the same thing. We could both go to the same ball game over here, be exposed to the same amount. You could yeah, come out a lot worse than I would or vice versa. And that's what scares the crap out of medical people. It's not that everybody's going to die from COVID. That was never really a concern. We know, I mean, we can look at worldwide numbers, what the expected recovery rate is. What is scary is the unknown and the potential to overrun our healthcare system. Yeah, that's you know, that's definitely a major concern. <clears throat> you know, and and six months ago, I could have told you how many ICU beds were available in Mississippi at any given time. I can't do that now, but let's say there's 500. There's not a lot. I mean, there's really not a lot of ICU beds available. Ventilators. That's a there's a finite number of ventilators available in the state of Mississippi. If we need that, what scares me is. I don't want to have to go look at someone and say, I'm sorry, your husband, wife, child, parent is not going to make it. They need to be on a ventilator, and we don't have one because our our facility is full of ventilator patients. That's what scares health. I don't think there's any healthcare provider that says, oh, you know, everybody's got to do this and hide out and don't don't go around. It's 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 not a fear of the, the virus as much as it is. It is the fear of the unknown. You know, and there's a lot of viruses out there that have funky effects years down the road. And what I'll bring up is chickenpox. You know, if you were unlucky enough to be born before the mid-'80s, you got chickenpox. Now when you get old, you get shingles. You know, where's who's to say that, that the coronavirus doesn't cause some weird disease 30 years down the road. We just yeah. don't know. So I, I, I think, um, one, it's, it's, not, it's not the end of the world, but it's nothing to be flippant about. It's nothing to say, you know, we don't need to do this, we don't need to do that. I can't tell you what the right thing to do as far as Policy. what should we shut down. What, yeah. I mean, that's not a medical or a nursing decision. Right. That is a, that's a policy decision, you know, by by flattening the curve, so to speak. You're not changing the number of cases. We're going to have the same number of cases. It's just a question of how quick do you want to get them. You know, there's yeah. there's some people who say, let's just go hog wild like they used to do when I was a kid and have chicken chicken pox parties where they, you know, smeared all the kids together with who whichever kid. It was at that time. Because you wanted your kid to get chicken pox in the summer, not during the school year where they'd have oh, to be out of school for it. So, that's you know, so wild. Yeah, so little Johnny caught, you know, he came down with chicken pox in, in the end of May, and, man, they had all kinds of parties over at his house, and all the kids caught chicken pox that summer, and then they were good to go back to school. That's wild. So I don't think, we're, I don't think we should do that. It is certainly um, a very serious. <laughs> spring breakers would say otherwise. <laughs> spring breakers <laughs> would say, and most of those probably went home maybe felt bad for the weekend. Um, but when you look at the death rate, you know, everybody likes it. Hell, 99.9% of the That's people. That's not true if you bump the numbers because you're, because you're comparing people that got it with, with those people that, that actually died. But, but what you should take is of those that contracted it, right. what's the relative portion of those that, that died? Like you, you should judge it the outcome, not a, not a running school, uh, uh, um, uh, data set 
because okay. you have to identify these are death as an outcome. Mm-hmm. So how much of the outcome was people being healthy? And from, from my estimation nationally, it's about 5%, 3% on the coast. Right. But 5% is also one out of 20. Right. So, and, and, you, and you say that, well, it's, it's, and a lot of people like to say, oh, it's only 3%, it's only 5%, whatever number, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but say one but out of 20, you, it's a little different. But when you look at, and here's what you have to look at, when you look at the death rate by age, and I looked at this about midsummer, and you see how the death rate for pediatric cases is almost non-existent. Oh, yeah. Almost doesn't happen. Even into your, you know, your early 20s, almost non-existent. Yeah. Versus you're older than 70. Now you're looking at one in three. Yeah. So that's what's scary. And, and yeah, that's like every at like nursing 50 years home, old. Yes. Every nursing home around that has had that has seen those numbers. Now you imagine, you know, one of these nursing homes around here over the course of a summer, a third of their patients died from COVID. That's, that's huge. Not only from a, a healthcare perspective, but just from a an impact on society. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you were you were talking about like, you know, the the impact of one in five or one in twenty, you know, dying. You know, you look at five percent or three percent. You're still talking about what ten million people. Yeah. That, that's a lot of people dying yeah. from that. No. How many people would die? And this was always kind of my discussion when we talked about, um, well, should they shut everything down to prevent that 10 million? Well, that's where you get into a policy decision of, does it make more sense to let 10 people die from COVID or do we completely wreck the economy? And what are the, what are the long-term health implications of a wrecked economy versus just letting this thing? That's for people way above my my head Uh, i can't make those determinations i can tell you that those are pretty much the choices but from an ethical or a moral or a policy standpoint i can't answer that that's interesting i i i kind of like the idea of uh well i read a an article in july i want to say the article was dated july 24th but it was out of john hopkins if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. um and 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 we can stop at any time so i i don't know what you're what your drop dead time is? We're 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 a few hours in so far, <laughs> but, but uh, I'll at least make this last you know point of discussion. And and if you want to call it a night, we can. All right. So it talked about the use of uh, UVC light, mm-hmm. and so I'm sure you're very familiar. A lot of hospitals right. will will have UVC lights in them to sterilize a room. Problem is, right. is that you can't be in that room, and that happens because it uh, pierces the moisture barrier of your eyes, so it can damage your eyesight, and it, and it also damages damages the epidermis but the problem well not the problem what the study talked about was that what they've discovered is that a certain range in the um, in the spectrum of light of uvc light called near uvc light during in that range it's it kills 99.9 percent of coronavirus particles right and it's also safe so you could have it as just a regular light in a school maybe or maybe every other light is you know one that one that you could have that light in there and it'd be great if it was just like kind of those those types of bulbs to put in there but that could redefine the landscape and especially in schools which is a a a very difficult you know conversation because for a lot of working people school is kind of a 
city provided daycare for them. And so there's an economic advantage to, to those individuals having kids in school. Right. Um, There is, UV light is certain. When I did took microbiology a long time ago, that was one of the, the projects we did. We smeared some bacteria on these Petri plates, covered it up, and then we put it under an, a UV light. Um, like you said, UV light is everywhere. The super concentrated stuff that they're using to almost instantaneously vaporize bacteria and virus, well, you know, it burns, burns holes in your eye. Mm-hmm. It, it causes all sorts of, of bad things. So I... I don't think we're going to see that technology necessarily hugely available anytime soon. And I really don't think that we're going to find that COVID transmits a lot from surface to surface contact. You know, you cough on your hand, touch the surface, and then I come by the next day and touch it and touch my, I don't think, I don't think that's how it primarily spreads. I think Mm -hmm. primarily it spreads through respiratory droplets. Sure. Um, I think that's fairly well established and I'm not, I'm not trying to get, Political. I'm just trying to tell you that that at least if you follow that line of thought, then the masking helps with that. It's not 100. percent It's not a. It's not a cure all. Never will be. But just like surgeons, when they go into an operating room for years, have worn a mask. Why? It's not to protect them from the patient. It's to protect the patient from them. We know we have plenty of of research that shows wearing a mask does prevent respiratory droplets does it present prevent a hundred percent of it no the some still come out you know you and i have beards does some of it still come out of the side of our mask yes but normally if i'm talking to you i'm looking at you and that's how that spread and i think that's that's what you're going to see that the, the bulk of it is spread which we don't know yet because we don't have that research but the bulk of it is going to spread through respiratory droplets so the UV light, while I think it's neat, it's certainly not going to hurt anything, mm-hmm. you know, along with I think there's some aerosolized alcohol stuffs that they're using. Um, the big thing is going to be, you know, quit breathing on each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I always tell my kids, you know, wash your hands and don't lick doorknobs. Yeah. That's, that'll get you through most things in life. Yeah. Well, um, if, if, if a mask protects, uh, like, keep 70% of the – droplets in right well then you turn that five percent down to uh well you reduce it by three and a half percent so you so now you're back down to one and a half percent if you wear masks and that's you know just a little over one out of a hundred right says that you know you're you're going to contract the virus or, or rather die from the virus so um i think I think a common sense approach, and, and, and that's the perspective that, that the wife and I take. Like, we don't think we're going to get – my wife's a little more concerned mm-hmm. than I am. But as a general rule, we're not doing it because we think that, you know, we're, we're type – see, we're type O blood. You know, we're young. We work out. You know, so it, we're, we're on the lower end of the risk spectrum. But I don't know you. I don't right. know your underlying health conditions. <laughs> right. But I certainly don't want to be the asshole that, that gives it to you and maybe – Maybe you're not susceptible, but you go home to maybe your wife and she is. And while I'll never know that, I'd rather not burden myself with the possibility. Right. You know, I can simply put a, clo- a piece of cloth over my face and, you know, we'll just, if that's the minimum necessary I can do to be a, you know, responsible citizen, then yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do that. Right. Um, I'll also wash my hands 
you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But, so, yeah. It, it, trust me, you're probably not going to find a more um, liberty-loving, conservative human being than the one sitting <laughs> in front of you right now. And, and I wear a mask partly because I understand the concept of why we should wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, to make it political is just, I think it's, it's horrible. And I saw something the other day that said wearing a mask is never political. Not wearing a mask is always political. So okay. um, to, to go that, I, I'm not going to tell you. I mean, my wife and I went out this weekend and we did some stuff in public. And, and there were a lot of people who were not wearing masks. I'm not, I, I don't have any right to go up and tell you, hey, you got to have a mask on. You're being inconsiderate to me. I, I don't really have that right. Now, I do have the right to say, hey, I'm not going to come to your establishment if you're going to allow everyone to, to, to be without a mask. Yeah. And, and, and you can do that. I didn't do that because mm-hmm. I, I wore a mask. I stayed away from other people. But, you know, people were like, oh, we don't need to wear a mask. I just got tested yesterday. Well, that's kind of a misnomer because you can't really prove a negative. So mm. to say, oh, well, I got tested yesterday and I was negative. Respiratory swabs are notoriously inaccurate if they're negative because of the way they work. All they're looking for is viral particles in your respiratory tract. So if I shove a big long swab down your, your throat, if I don't hit the exact spot where there happens to be respiratory particles, I'm not going to find them on that swab. And that's really the, the problem that I have with all of it is everyone's relying on these respiratory swabs to say, I don't have it, so I don't need to wear a mask. Well, you don't know that. And it's actually about a 35% false negative rate, which to me is enough to say any negative respiratory swab is non-diagnostic, meaning it's of no diagnostic value. If you have a positive, then there are viral particles in your respiratory tract. You can pretty much bank on it. Yeah. Less than a 1% false negative rate. 35%. 35%. I mean, that's almost a coin toss. Yeah. So. Well, there's there's also the the uh, sort of gambler's fallacy of that, right? And so, you know, if you got six dice and you've thrown it, you know, five times, the number you should hit or, or want, you know, should be on the next roll. But uh, every, every time is a random event. And so it's always 50%, no matter what, you know, right. so, and, and, and so you get tested great in that moment at that particular time in this universe, you did not have it, but maybe you take a breath in, in the next step you take, and now you've taken in a viral load. So right. the testing is, is the fact by virtue of being tested and being found positive to me just means that you don't have anything at the time of testing, but that does not excuse. Exactly. Or <laughs> actually, they're about 60, 40 positive that you didn't have it then. But there's still that 35%. Yeah, yeah right. And, and that, study, that study where I get the 35%, that was actually trained researchers who were going in. This was, uh, it was either RSV or the influenza. The concept is the same because it's the same type of test. You're doing the same mm-hmm. thing. And they with trained researchers, still had about a 35% false negative rate. Wow. Do you? I, wo- I'm not hanging my hat on that one. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and I th- don't think any reasonable person would. Are you concerned that it's an RNA virus? And with it being an RNA virus, they've never developed a vaccine. And I worry from the money standpoint that the 
common cold is a corona uh, structured virus. Correct. And so that's also a $150 billion a year industry. And I wonder if it's maybe possible to cure it, but the concern is destroying that industry at least in America. Now, now this is, this is the tinfoil hat part and right. I try not to do these things, but I can't, again, me, I'm, I'm, I'm philosophically and economically minded. And, and so when I look at this, I think, well, there's an easy incentive here. And I've already talked a lot about where I see incentives, but what do you think? I guess there were two parts of that. <laughs> there is. And I, I, there is some incentive. I like to believe that there is not some, you know, big brother looking down, controlling all this. I, I really do. While there may be some of that, you know, there's some money involved. There is definitely some influence that's bought and paid for at sure. all levels of the government. Sure. Um, I just don't think that the people on the ground doing the work are a part of that. You know, I assure you that none of the folks that I work with are involved with, you know, sending off fake swabs to to prove some point on Facebook that oh this swab came back positive. Interesting, Jeff. Nobody brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but I, I just I don't think that I, I don't think that there's some big uh, ulterior you know collective force working. And I don't either. It was just a fun thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there some of that happening? Absolutely. Do I think that we're going to develop a vaccine for this in the near future that's safe and effective? No, I do not. Do I think that this will continue until it mutates enough that it's no longer um, infectious to humans? I do. Um, and, and that's kind of what happens. I mean, even if you look at the, at the flu pandemic of the early 1900s, you know, it just kind of went away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was no big thing that said, oh, okay, you know, it's all over. Which we saw this summer whenever they opened everything up Memorial Day weekend and said, oh, you know, you can go out and do some limited, you know, business and everybody went woo you were talking about the spring breakers and you know going buck wild and then all summer we've had to deal with full hospitals and full icus you know trying to find ventilators because and you can see a definitive spike after memorial day weekend Mm -hmm. all across the coast where everybody opened up yeah and because it was like all right game over you know this is not a finite game um, healthcare is never, you know, a, a finite game where we're going to say, okay, we have 100% cured high blood pressure. Go eat all the bacon that you want. You know, I don't think we're going to have a, all right, we've cured Corona. You can take your mask off and not socially distant, or at least not be concerned about it. Um, if nothing else, I think we're going to see a dramatically reduced flu season mm-hmm. because the same things that worked for Corona worked for flu. So with everybody social distancing, masking, that's going to help a lot with our flu, mm. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got to go time get my, my uh, flu shot here soon. It's about okay. that time. But, uh, but yeah, well, Jeff, we've done, we've done three hours and 40 minutes. What would you think? Well, I can't imagine 
for all the life of me, what we could talk about for three hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> well, and second of all, why would anybody be interested in it? But, I'm telling you, but, but, but people but are, man. Um, here I am I listening get... to your, your metal detector friend, you know, out there finding <laughs> cannonballs and learning about not all the cannonballs were just a chunk of metal. They had gunpowder yeah. in them. Yeah. And I, who knew that? I know. Well, that, well, that's the thing too. Uh, again, I was telling you earlier, some people have, have told me that it's been almost, dare I say, therapeutic that, that they've been able to kind of realize um, that the things and experiences that they have accumulated in their life is something of value. And especially when I tell them like, you know, yeah, I mean, like one of my guests was, was very concerned about kind of pontificating or, or, you know, sounding like an idiot on air. And I, and I was like, man, just relax, be yourself. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. And he had a very, very high download rate. That was international, by the way. Um, I won't say his name online because I don't want to say that he was he was he was kind of nervous. But yeah, people just like to hear other people and it and gain insight into them. And um, I mean, I, I got to tell you, you were you were recommended by by David. And yeah, I don't I don't take recommendations lightly. I mean, there's there's a reason. There's got to be a reason, you know. Well, I mean, hell, you, you you do these YouTube channels. You <laughs> you mess around with an Arduino. You're a nurse. You know, you you you've got a military background. You. You're a very reasonable dude. I've found out over the course of three hours and 40 minutes, which, you know, a, a recommendation from, from, from David, uh, shout out to David Mitchell, would, would uh, I, I wouldn't expect anything less. So, yeah. you know, he's a super great guy. Yeah, he is. He was my sixth grade English teacher. That's so. what he told me. Yeah. And, and that's how this kind of all came about. You know, I was, I work with, with him and I, I was kind of walking by and he's like, hey, there's a guy that you need to call. He's, He's trying to get a podcast going. He's got a couple episodes out there. I said, oh, well, let me listen to his podcast. And I think it was one. It was uh, it was um, the cardiologist's son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his name escapes me. Zayed. Uh, yeah. yeah. So Dr. Zayed's son, Fode? Foad. Foad. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is great, <laughs> this guy. And, you know, I was like, this guy's He's living his life. Yeah, so and I he, started he listening just chased and, his passion. That's it, yeah. you know, which is so, the so underwater. I, I, uh, just for full disclosure, I mean, we've been going back and forth for probably, what, six, six eight weeks now yeah, trying yeah. to just team up. So I, yeah. I, I took off this whole week mm-hmm. just so I can make sure. And come oh, no kidding. Spend an, hour, <laughs> yeah, spend an hour or two chatting with you. But um, it's, been, it's been fun. Yeah. Well, well, uh, well Dr. Zayed has uh, two two brilliant sons. I mean, mm-hmm. his uh, his other son Hussein owns uh, goodness, I think it's ZCB Boats, and he went to school I think to be an aerospace engineer. He quit it. He just quit the program. Came back and said he wants to start building boats. And his longtime girlfriend, I think fiance, she's a um, she's a. She's a doctor of something. It's something in the mental health field. I'm trying to get both of them on. But uh, he, he builds these boats that are now, like, competing with major boat companies. And he engineers everything himself. He designs everything himself. Uh, and, and people were kind of worried that he kind of quit and decided he wanted to get in this venture. But he might have just kind of realized the same thing that his younger brother would never be like. successful without that degree. <laughs> but, but, that's, but that's exactly <clears throat> what happened. And, and he builds, I'm telling you, some beautiful boats, some absolutely beautiful boats, large boats, um, mostly center console, as, as far as all the ones I've seen. But this is center console country down here. So, right. um, But, yeah, he's, he's, I'd like to talk to him, too, because 
I mean, what do you have to do to create two brilliant sons like that? Like, like what kind of environment do you, do you have to make? I mean, uh, it's because it's, it's wild. I mean, they're, they're very non, non-conventional uh, tracks. And right. I think he is, uh, Dr. Zayed is first-generation Egyptian right. American. So I, I can't help but think there's something to that, coming over and cutting your teeth in a new country, and then you kind of get to give those firsthand stories to your kids, and maybe that does something. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. who knows? Get him on. I'm, I'm, I want to. I want to get all of them on. I just, it's kind of weird to get like a whole family on here. But, but in, in an ideal world, I'd like to get, you know, Foad Hussein and their father on as well and even mm-hmm. their mother and just have a conversation. Like, like what was it like? What did you guys right. have to do here? Because you know? their mother is German. German. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. first generation German, right? I or think so. Something yeah. close to it. Or maybe she was second. I, I I can't remember, but um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she's she's got some stories to to tell too, and about kind of influences. Because if she was first generation, then her parents would have come over during maybe during the World War II time. Yeah, or so, right after. Yeah, or, or right after. So so they might have some some firsthand experience that she can kind of distill down and and kind of talk about how that influenced her her life as well. But yeah, we're sitting here talking about other people doing your podcast, but, um, but yeah, Jeff, man, it's, it's, it's been a blast. Do you want to talk about, uh, maybe how people can get in touch with you on social media? It sounded like you were, you're Um, on that. Probably the, the best, the most active that I am is, and it's not very active, um, is on YouTube Mm -hmm. and, um, Instagram. And those are both mudflap two D's and two P's. Um, and, and that's where I post most of my stuff. I, I don't post as much as I would like to. I just, I don't have the time. Um, and for those who've never kind of done this thing, it takes a lot of time and effort to edit and produce all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just, I don't have it. And, and I got a lot of other irons in the fire right now. Mm-hmm. But I do every now and then just grab the phone and be like, hey, let me throw something up. Um, I have an Instagram, also mudflap, uh, two Ds and two Ps. And if you're really crazy, I have the Goats of Mudflap Ranch, which is all about my goats, which we didn't even talk about any of the animals. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to plug that real quick. But if you're interested in goats, I take pictures and short videos and snippets of my um, goats. I have about 35 head of goats out on the, the Mudflap Ranch and and that's kind of what we do. Well, that's fantastic. We should we should do another episode maybe maybe at your place, we can, we can do a walk around the property. You know, I can see your shop and we can, we can kind of contain the conversation because I'll be honest with you. There's, I think, <laughs> I think we could have gone down maybe a few more hours, but <laughs> we, we, there might be a few avenues that we have not explored. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can't think of them right now. You know, I feel well, pretty worked over. I know. <laughs> Well, thanks for doing this, and and I will say you kind of you kind of put yourself through it because I did ask you if you had to stop dead time, but you did. <laughs> but anyway, time flies in here. Um, well, anyway, Jeff, again, thank you so much. I've had a blast talking to you, and uh, we got to do it again sometime, man. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Everybody, thanks again for listening. As always, we appreciate the support from each and every one of you. If you found value in this episode or you just enjoyed the entertainment, feel free to give us a review and a rating. Also, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Check out our website at shopandchivalry.com where we have links to our episodes, a blog, pictures, and other media, and also a way to get in contact with us. 
Shoot us an email or message if you would like to be on the show. Finally, follow us on Facebook at The Shop and Chivalry Podcast, Instagram, Shop and Chivalry, and Twitter, at Shop and Chivalry. Thanks again, everybody. See ya.